Christians versus Pharisees, choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon Civil War. Episode 11a, Take Back Control, How to Remove Incompetent, Racist, Abusive, Misogynist, Lying Thieves from Power and Give Christian Mormonism a Chance to Survive. Greetings intrepid listeners. This mini-series will look at the ongoing and increasingly clear and public proof that the current leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their core values really can be accurately described as the list of not-at-all-flattering labels I have used in its title. If they make you angry or uncomfortable, don't worry, justice has already been done. I have already been tried in a court of love before my state presidency and high council, and excommunicated in 2021 for calling these leaders names, even though it was in a context of hours of evidence from their own words proving the labels reasonable. In this mini-series, I will present you with more of the evidence that has poured out of the mouths of the general authorities and into the general conferences, global broadcasts to young adults, and the new church education system teaching manuals for Sunday school, seminary and institute, proving that these men indeed are, intentionally, not accidentally, incompetent, racist, misogynist, lying thieves, who are facilitators and proactive protectors of child abusers. And I will explore the realistic, already scriptural and canonised ways that we can remove them from power and replace them with leaders who are competent, racially inclusive, treat women as equals, honest, prioritise giving to the poor over taking from them and understand that nothing could possibly ever take a higher priority than safeguarding children from sexual predators. If you have a choice to make between safeguarding children from sexual predators and something else, such as saving money, inconvenience, being embarrassed, admitting you got this wrong in the past, exposure to being sued, you always choose to safeguard children. You do what is right and let the consequences follow. But these apostles have repeatedly shown that they do not share that belief or priority. With them, despite having almost unlimited funds, all of those things legitimately can be prioritised at the cost of throwing children to the sexual predator wolves. They matter more. The idea that the general authorities could never tell a small little white lie or steal a pencil from Ikea without being mortified with guilt and needing to profoundly repent in order to reactivate their priesthood keys from a god who requires a lot where a lot of responsibility is given is the baseline assumption of the typical Latter-day Saint. The idea that they would be even slightly more naughty than us, never mind guilty of this list of appalling sins and crimes, is completely unthinkable to them. It would have seemed completely impossible and the most ludicrous slander to me for most of my life to believe that the 15 prophets, seers and revelators leading my religion were actually corrupt and deceptive until I started paying closer attention. 
and they started blabbing their secrets and true values in public. Insider, lower-ranking whistleblowers have played a crucial role in proving the astonishing scale of the corruption going on, especially in what they have done with our money. But one of the major themes of this podcast is to show that you don't even need that extra layer of information anymore. The general authorities are saying and publishing publicly more than enough by themselves for us to discover their irrational self-contradictions and hypocrisies, particularly their shocking decision to just run with what the church teaches us are all the hallmarks of Lucifer's religion and fake plan of salvation instead of the religion and plan of salvation of Mormon Jesus. Because the general authorities are making this so obvious now, thousands of once completely trusting and faithful church members, including members of bishoprics, stake presidencies, and ward and stake relief society presidencies, are discovering the grim truth and leaving their callings and congregations every year. Their hearts are heavy. They have a lot to process as they reflect on the person hours, huge amounts of money, and ongoing constant stress and worry their life as active serving church members cost them for what turned out to be mostly pointless busy work. It ended up shrinking their communities rather than growing them. There is almost nothing to show for all those years of effort and faith. They can see clearly now, and they aren't coming back. Despite a fortune spent on PR propaganda, and then you turning the I'm a proud and happy Mormon propaganda, the global public reputation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, never that great at the best of times, is plummeting to the murky depths at the bottom of the opinion polls, where we now rub shoulders with the Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists and Satanists. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists have been publicly excoriated in recent years for their financial and child abuse scandals, but they pale into insignificance compared to what is emerging now about the Mormon ones. However, my hope and proposition is that this headlong descent into corruption, deception and hypocrisy, which many informed people reasonably argue has been endemic in Mormonism right from the start, is not the only destiny the church could choose. As some ex-Mormons have been commenting recently in their very large social media support groups, the greatest asset of the church, despite all its dysfunctions, is its grassroots members. On the whole, they are trying sincerely to love and serve each other and their communities like Jesus would want them to. This service and sense of belonging is usually highly conditional upon being an active member who is not expressing any controversial or dissenting opinions on a Sunday, but if you are in that bubble and following the rules, it's a lovely community. I love big ideas. So to me, and many other people, the social scene and sincerity of a lot of its members is not the church's only redeeming feature. Ideologically, there is a beautiful, ethical, inspiring thread of golden truth running through Mormonism's doctrines and culture 
that could be woven into a big tent where all of us and all of our children could be welcomed and safe. But very few of its general authorities show any hint of understanding this or feeling its absence with the heartache that we do. Their architectural vision is a fortress with high impenetrable walls built of lies to keep the world and its knowledge away from the tiny infantilized flock within. Our one occasional glimmer of hope has been the German silver fox. First Presidency Councillor Dieter Uchtdorf for years used nearly every opportunity in his general conference talks to gently but directly address the things he can see causing this exodus of the faithful. He said out loud, from the literal and metaphorical podium of his authority, that we do have problems, that there are good reasons why people leave, that our leaders have not always reflected our religion's values, even that the church has crushed the flower of the gospel under a mountain of man-made ideas, programs, and expectations in his It Works Wonderfully talk in October 2015 General Conference, just a month before the November policy blew up the hopes we were investing in him. He actually said that. In conference, he repeatedly admitted that the church is the cause of its own problems and decline, not some other scapegoat. He alone challenged the nihilistic narrative that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and has never been so awful and is going to end tomorrow by reminding people of the significantly improving global state of affairs in literacy and people being lifted out of poverty. Dieter spoke on the 7th of March 2014 at a church history symposium and taught the Christian-Mormon approach to faith and trust crisis. Looking back from 2023, it seems like a lifetime ago, a world away and a very different religion. No one had heard of Ensign Peak, and the final stage of the takeover of the church by the totalitarian control freak Covenant Path, Sad Heaven and Lord's Battalion ideology of the Pharisee-Mormon Sith Masters had not yet happened. The positive, I'm a Mormon, engagement with the world, championed by President Sinkley and Monson, was still in full flow. Despite the still painfully slow pace of change, it still seemed possible that the church leaders might wake up to the realities of the 21st century before being trampled by them. Uchtdorf's talk at the Church History Symposium was titled Seeing Beyond the Leaf. I quoted it on a summer holiday in Cornwall in 2015 in a sacrament talk I was invited to give at my sister's ward in Helston. I was starting to experience an awakening about the changes that need to happen in the church pretty urgently if it was going to survive longer than me and starting to muster the courage to talk about them openly. You could say I had been prepared and trained for this for a long time by my mum. For decades since I was a toddler, she repeatedly served in ward and stake primary and relief society leadership, and then as a regional public relations officer for the church. 
He then trained as a relationship counsellor, eventually working with LDS Family Services and doing a lot of work training the bishoprics and stake presidencies like those my dad was serving in to refer people in crisis to them instead of trying to fix everyone's problems on their own and messing up badly. While maintaining a very professional and calm persona in public, she often vented at home about the frustrations and pain that motivated her from her and her sister's bruising encounters with the endemic sexism and patriarchy in the church. While deeply faithful to the church, she had a visceral rage against polygamy and how Joseph Smith treated and betrayed Emma. She had experienced the typical LDS housewife sense of abandonment as her husband spent most evenings of the week after work in church meetings or running around after other branch and ward members, helping them fix their problems and meeting their needs while she was trying to cope with running a household with four young children. She had just as many years of frustrating experience in her callings, dealing with the aftermath of her sisters being ignored, harmed and given terrible advice by totally untrained priesthood leaders they trusted completely as inspired by God, even though they mostly did not have a clue what they were doing. None of those local priesthood leaders wanted to harm people. They were victims too of the church's wishful thinking about their mantles and aversion to professionalism and training. Completely impossible workloads and expectations are piled onto branch presidents and bishops, especially back in the 1970s and 80s. Mum's approach to these dysfunctions in her family life and community was to be solution-oriented, as well as making very clear in our sometimes heated and often hilarious conversations at home what was wrong and why it was happening. She has always been a great example of that Mormon ideal of lifting yourself and others wherever you find yourself standing. She was sports captain, an air cadet and head girl at her Roman Catholic convent school. She educated and empowered herself as a lifelong learner with evening classes to continue developing her creative talents, while she put her professional career as an art teacher on hold to be a full-time stay-at-home mother. Then she would teach her new skills to us. Our evenings and weekends, with only three channels on the black and white TV, were like homemaking on steroids. There was a run of a few months when we all did quilting and patchwork quilting, others when the bath was full of water with sticks in, being softened up for the basket-making phase. There was the macrame phase, the paper flowers phase, corn dollies, woodworking with Dad, the mechanical engineer in the freezing garage, the pottery phase where we dug up clay from the garden and made pots with it, and always drawing and painting. Out of this cottage industry of arts and crafts came our lifelong passions and careers. Three artists and a mechanical engineer, although one of the artists had the sense to also train as an actuary and earn some money. Mum also got involved in secular, social and political organisations like the Women's Institute and the Freedom Association. But her main life's work outside the home and art teaching was as a church leader. 
Mum is in the ruthless grip of Alzheimer's disease now, so I've been reorganising and purging her office this summer. I have waded through shelf after shelf, heaving with ring binders, with her immaculately prepared and organised lesson plans and resources that she spent decades delivering to ward and stake leaders on her tours of ward conferences, her gospel doctrine Sunday school classes and marriage preparation courses. Over and over, the themes of her talks and lessons and training seminars were women are equal and valuable and have precious gifts to offer. Women, know your worth and power. Men, listen to women, respect them. Despite our pre-internet remoteness from all the intellectual centres of Mormondom, she was secretly subscribing to the Mormon feminist newspaper, Exponent 2, that helped reassure her she wasn't alone or crazy in her concerns. When I discovered Sunstone magazine after my mission in the early 1990s, we subscribed to it and devoured each edition like manna from heaven. She was fascinated to talk about what I was up to in my early dissident Facebook posting while also terrified, paranoid even, about what the church might do to me for speaking up as I was. It was that fear that particularly disturbed and radicalised me. It seemed to run parallel to the deep existential fear she had that Dad would marry more polygamous wives if she died first, or in the next life. She was very clear that if that happened, Dad was on his own, as she wasn't going to put up with it, whatever the consequences for her eternal mansions. But the male general authorities' blithe mantra that when you get to heaven you'll be so blissfully tolerant that being one of many plural wives won't bother you anymore seemed to spook her. It made her question her resolve about that, and thus question her God, and herself, and who she really was and whether who she really was would be snuffed out and replaced by a Stepford plural wife automaton as soon as her life on earth was over. How dare anyone or anything about this religion cause my mother, who had given everything, done everything that it required of her, to be so fearful, so insecure about her place in the church now and in Mormon heaven, when Dallin Oaks made a joke in General Conference recently about the existential fears of polygamously sealed women wondering what that eternity would actually involve, and he added insult to injury by continuing to mansplain that she shouldn't worry about that, it would be just fine, and continuing to refuse to do his job and seek answers to those questions as an alleged prophet, seer, and revelator, I was disgusted. The real prophets and ministers in our church are people like Carol Lynn Pearson, who at the same time published The Ghost of Mormon Polygamy to communicate to these arrogant, blundering fools the wounds they are throwing salt into and mocking. At Helston that Sunday, my mum spoke first. She focused her talk on Dieter Uchtdorf too, choosing his April 2015 General Conference talk titled On Being Genuine. Mum's oft-repeated mantra was that our challenge in the church is to make the ideal real. 
both as a challenge to improve things to get closer to our ideals, but also as a reality check to stop harming and breaking people, especially women, by imposing expectations, ideals, and solutions on them that bear no relation to their lived experiences and don't actually help address their real needs, but rather add to their burdens, as too often happens in the church. In my talk, I developed that theme further. I listed the things Jesus criticised the Pharisees for doing, pointed out where we are doing the same things in the church today, and encouraged everyone to recognise this and choose Christian Mormonism over Pharisee Mormonism. My willingness to be quite blunt about the church getting some things wrong caused the Bishop of Helston Ward to hit the roof. He had a freak out at my sister and her hubby demanding the contact details of my stake leaders, and then phoned me as we literally fled across the county line on Bodmin Moor from Cornwall to Devon, like the Dukes of Hazard speeding to get away from the jurisdiction of Sheriff Boss Hogg, to express his exasperation with me, and tell me that if I was in his ward, he would have taken my temple recommend away for what I said from his pulpit. Dieter Uchtdorf's advice to the gathered LDS historians at the BYU Church History Symposium on the 7th of March 2014, titled Seeing Beyond the Leaf, as they grappled with the explosion of information and analysis of the church's history and documents just a few years into the Joseph Smith Papers project and the Gospel Topics essays trying to contain the damage and nudge the official narratives a bit more towards honesty, was simple. It was to do the Christian Mormon thing. Remember that we don't have all the answers yet so be open to new information about the truth. And very pointedly, whatever source it comes from. Dieter was not in denial about the trouble the church leaders have brought upon themselves by lying and hiding the information the internet had started sharing with the world. He wasn't in denial about the strategic error his predecessors in the First Presidency had made to choose to keep the members in ignorance, rather than use the fat years to carefully introduce the real history to them and help them adjust to the more accurate story of the church's origins and journey. He wasn't playing the stupid game the first presidency that later evicted him from the top quorum are now playing, telling everyone that the only reliable sources of truth are themselves and the church's divinely appointed sources of information, and to ignore and fear all other sources of information. Dieter frames our present experiences as part of the larger journey of learning and progression. Like Elder Ballard would shortly afterwards on the 26th of February 2016, in his speech to the church education system staff titled the opportunities and responsibilities of CES teachers in the 21st century, President Uchtdorf specifically told them to stop indulging in what he called the cliché of teaching faith-promoting rumours instead of real history. It seemed so normal and familiar and reasonable at the time. Of course, this is how Mormonism is meant to approach learning and history. 
open-minded, taking into account all the evidence, hungry to discover more and do better than previous generations at understanding our heritage and using that to inform our future. Now, it sounds like an entirely different religion compared to the anti-truth and anti-learning philosophy taught by pretty much all the general authorities and official church historians now. Dorf's Seeing Beyond the Leaf talk can be found on the church website and YouTube. Here are a few key paragraphs from it. How jarring they all sound compared to what has become the usual messaging from the current First Presidency. About 45 minutes in, he said, I'm indeed grateful for the marvelous work that is being done to prepare and publish the Joseph Smith Papers. Learning about the real struggles and real successes of early church leaders and members is a very faith-promoting process for me. We always need to remember that transparency and openness keep us clear of the negative side effects and measures being followed after by the world of secrecy or the cliché of faith-promoting rumors. Jesus taught the Jews, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth and transparency complement each other. As we know, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. My dear brothers, my dear sisters, one of the most fascinating things about this mortal experience is that there is so much to learn. Isn't it a remarkable feeling to belong to a church that not only embraces truth, no matter the source, but that teaches there's much more to come, that God will yet reveal many great things and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. As a result, we are humble about the truth we have. We understand our knowledge is a work in progress, that the leaf we have before us is simply one microscopic snapshot, part of an infinitely vast forest of fascinating knowledge. Our little world, our small section of experience, may be an accurate and true reflection of our reality, but it is only an infinitesimal atom in the vast universe of what we eventually will know. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that a glorious concept? Isn't it wondrous to belong to a church that teaches that infinite progress and eternal knowledge await those who set foot upon the path of discipleship of Jesus Christ and follow it in faithfulness and in dedication? Well, my dear brothers and sisters, I wish you the best in this noble effort as you pursue the great adventure of recording and clarifying history. The roads we travel are certainly not guaranteed to be easy or ever blessed. But if we keep traveling in the pursuit of truth, they will always lead back to the ultimate truth. They will lead us to our Heavenly Father, who is the great historian 
the great record keeper, the great creator, the mentor, and our friend. Dieter Uchtdorf was reiterating the principles in the superb, education-friendly quotes from the religion's first leaders, who, despite their many faults, were still enthusiastic and fearless about this religion's embrace of all truth from everywhere. They were confident that the truth always prevails and stands up to any scrutiny, so there is no need to limit or censor our research and are seeking for more knowledge. To me and many others, one of the clearest signs that today's apostles don't actually believe what they teach, or have much confidence or faith in it, or how they are personally blagging it, is their paranoia about anyone fact-checking or researching it from sources and settings they do not control. You only have that fear if you know you have a lot to hide. If you really believe you have the truth, you are fearless about any kind of scrutiny of it. Dieter said in that talk, quote, We always need to remember that transparency and openness keep us clear of the negative side effects and measures being followed after by the world of secrecy, or the cliché of faith-promoting rumours. Jesus taught the Jews, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth and transparency complement each other. Close quote. And, quote, Isn't it a remarkable feeling to belong to a church that not only embraces truth, no matter the source, but that teaches there is much more to come? Close quote. Well, it would be a remarkable feeling to have if it were true. But sadly, Dieter was kidding himself and his audience. The leadership of the church have completely abandoned the principles of its founders and past great thinkers. Let's remind ourselves what they taught and what fearless, all-embracing love of truth above all else looks and sounds like. Joseph Smith said this, One of the grand, fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from whence it may. That's in Discourses of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 199. Quote, We should gather all the truth and true principles in the world and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons. That's Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 316. Quote, Mormonism is truth, and every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Consequently, the shackles of superstition, bigotry, ignorance, and priestcraft fall at once from his neck, and his eyes are open to see the truth. The truth greatly prevails over priestcraft. Mormonism is truth. In other words, the doctrine of the Latter-day Saints is truth. The first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is that we believe that we have a right to embrace all and every item of truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the creeds or superstitious notions of men or by the dominations of one another 
when that truth is clearly demonstrated to our minds and we have the highest degree of evidence of the same. Joseph Smith wrote that in a letter to Isaac Galland on March the 22nd, 1839, from Liberty Jail in Missouri. And it was published in the Times and Seasons in February 1840, pages 53 to 54. Another quote from him, quote, I stated that the most prominent difference in sentiment between the Latter-day Saints and sectarians was that the latter were all circumscribed by some peculiar creed, which deprived its members the privilege of believing anything not contained therein, whereas the Latter-day Saints are ready to believe all true principles that exist as they are made manifest from time to time. That's in the history of the church, volume 5, 215, and also the manuscript, book D1, page 1433 in the church archives. In a discourse Joseph Smith gave on October the 15th, 1843, in Nauvoo, Illinois, he said, I cannot believe in any of the creeds of the different denominations because they all have some things in them I cannot subscribe to. Though all of them have some truth, I want to come up into the presence of God and learn all things, but the creeds set up stakes or limits and say, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. Brigham Young also believed this big idea, quote, Mormonism, so-called, embraces every principle pertaining to life and salvation, for time and eternity, no matter who has it. If the infidel has got the truth, it belongs to Mormonism. The truth and sound doctrine possessed by the sectarian world, and they have a great deal, all belong to this church. As for their morality, many of them are morally just as good as we are. All that is good, lovely, and praiseworthy belongs to this church and kingdom. Mormonism includes all truth. There is no truth but what belongs to the gospel. It is life, eternal life. It is bliss. It is the fullness of all things in the gods and in the eternities of the gods. That's from Discourses of Brigham Young 3. Another Brigham Young quote. It is our duty and calling as ministers of the same salvation and gospel to gather every item of truth and reject every error. Whether a truth be found with professed infidels or with the Universalists or the Church of Rome or the Methodists, the Church of England, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Quakers, the Shakers or any other of the various and numerous different sects and parties, all of whom have more or less truth, it is the business of the elders of this church, Jesus their older brother being at their head, to gather up all the truths in the world pertaining to life and salvation, to the gospel we preach, to the sciences and to philosophy, wherever it may be found in every nation, kindred, tongue and people, and bring it to Zion. That's Discourses of Brigham Young, page 248. Brigham Young declared, quote, how gladly would we understand every principle pertaining to science and art and become thoroughly acquainted with every intricate operation of nature and with all the chemical changes that are constantly going on around us. 
how delightful this would be, and what a boundless field of truth and power is open for us to explore. Journal of Discourses, volume 9, page 168, and that was said on the 26th of January, 1862. As Apostle Hugh B. Brown put it in his 1958 speech at BYU, titled Man and What He May Become, quote, We're very grateful in the church and in this great university that the freedom, dignity, and integrity of man is basic in church doctrine as well as in democracy. Here we are free to think and express our opinion. Fear will not stifle thought as is the case in some areas which have not yet emerged from the dark ages. But God himself refused to trammel man's free agency, even though its exercise sometimes teaches painful lessons. Both creative science and revealed religion find their fullest and truest expression in an atmosphere of freedom. I hope you will develop the questing spirit be unafraid of new ideas, for they're the stepping stones to progress. But you will respect, of course, the opinions of others. Well, now I mention the freedom to express your thoughts, but I caution you that your thoughts and expressions must meet competition in the marketplace of thought. And in that competition, truth must emerge triumphant. Only error needs to fear freedom of expression. Seek truth in all fields, and in that searching, you're going to need at least three virtues, courage, zest, and modesty. The ancients put that thought in the form of a prayer. They said, from the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from the laziness that is content with half-truth, from the arrogance that thinks it has all the truth, O oh God of truth, deliver us. Science and religion must both avoid dogmatism. Religious people know only what God has been pleased to reveal about himself, and scientists frankly admit that today's truth may be modified and amplified by tomorrow's discovery. And President Clark, in that splendid little book of his, Man, God's Greatest Miracle, gives us a learned and a beautiful description of the body of man. But man is also spiritual. He's mental, moral, and aesthetic. And if he is to find satisfaction, it will be the satisfaction of the com his own complete and true and unavoidable nature. These satisfactions are the things for which we strive. Remember, though, what Wyman said in this search for truth, the greatest enemy of truth is man's tenacity in clinging to unjustified beliefs. You must always be ready to reinterpret your concepts when they fail to pass the test of newfound facts. You must dethrone your prejudices. Someone has said that prejudice is a vagrant opinion without visible means of support. Now, while I've said there's very little said in the scripture about the creation, I call your attention to this fact, that God is the author of two accounts of the creation. One is in the Bible, supplemented by modern revelation, and the other is in the strata of the earth. Now, if you think of it in those terms, you will realize that there cannot be any conflict 
between those two accounts because they both had the same divine author. Our scriptures, some of them in which we believe, were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone and delivered to Moses. And other scriptures were dictated by him to his prophets, scribes, and here, both ancient and modern, and here we have the world's finest literature. But there's no more fascinating story and none more accurate when properly interpreted and understood than the story that is written also figuratively by the finger of God on the stony pages of the earth's crust. I mention the freedom to express your thoughts, but I caution you that your thoughts and expressions must meet competition in the marketplace of thoughts. And in that competition, truth must emerge triumphant. Only error needs to fear freedom of expression. Seek truth in all fields. Close quote. People who speak up now to research and share all the truth they can find about the church and its origins are these days condemned by church leaders, like recently ordained 70 and Young Men General Presidency member Ahmed Corbett, as satanic threats to the church, not its heroes and role models anymore. He called them ATCs, activists towards the church, and my recent episode took a deep dive into his role perpetuating the church's racist god. I will eventually get to recording and posting a podcast episode dissecting his talk about activists to the church's chaplains. But for now, let's remind ourselves that Joseph Smith wrote, and we learnt in seminary, the manifesto for this activism that Ahmed Corbett and the First Presidency condemn and forbid. It has been canonised as Doctrine and Covenants 123 verses 12 to 17. Quote, And also, it is an imperative duty that we owe to all the rising generation, and to all the pure in heart. For there are many yet on the earth, among all sects, parties, and denominations, who are blinded by the subtle craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, and who are only kept from the truth, because they know not where to find it. Therefore, that we should waste and wear out our lives in bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness wherein we know them, and they are truly manifest from heaven. These should then be attended to with great earnestness. Let no man count them as small things, for there is much which lieth in futurity pertaining to the saints, which depends upon these things. You know, brethren, that a very large ship is benefited very much by a very small helm in the time of a storm, by being kept workways with the wind and the waves. Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. Close quote. I was inspired growing up as a teenager in a tiny, misunderstood minority religion by this idea that if you are speaking the truth, your small voice can have a huge impact in the world. You can make a difference to the whole course of the good ship Zion. Everything I've experienced and observed since has proven this to be true. 
As I will show in this mini-series, lone voices have had a huge transformative impact in what we know about our church's history and its leaders' financial corruptions, and bringing about tangible changes in its child safeguarding practices. There is a powerful context and a hopeful postscript to my adventures in Helston Ward when I took the risk of bringing to light hidden things of darkness wherein I knew them with great earnestness. Until recently, their bishop had been Stephen Bloor, who had an epic faith crisis and was excommunicated for telling people what he had discovered about Joseph Smith's polygamizing of girls and other men's wives and other things he was discovering for the first time at the end of a long tenure as leader of that congregation. Understandably, this had a very disruptive impact on a ward that had traditionally been extremely orthodox and traditional, and the last place on earth you would expect a faith crisis explosion to kick off. It was a rude awakening for my sister and brother-in-law and their lovely community, as they were forced to hear about and respond to a startling mountain of secrets the church had been hiding from them in their naive faith and trust. Some left, others doubled down on traditional TBM tropes, and others bravely chose the path of complicated, nuanced participation, while working out how to reconcile the contradictions and minefield of truth bombs in a way that works for them. Stephen Bloor went on to famously team up with ex-stake president Tom Phillips, who is famous for being the first to speak publicly in the modern era about the ongoing secret second anointings, guaranteeing exaltation, going on behind most temple recommend holders' backs for the most loyal elite in the church. Together, they attempted a court case in London against President Thomas S. Monson to get their tithing donations back, taken on the basis of provably false claims about the church's history and doctrines. They never stood a chance as courts are reluctant to legislate about belief systems, and more recent attempts to get the tithing back have wisely focused on standard fraud and misrepresentations of what the money was going to be used for, rather than religious truth claims. At the time, even as a dissident, I was embarrassed by what Bloor and Phillips did, as it seemed so silly and futile. But I now realise what a stroke of performance art genius it was, as a way to get people to think through and make the connections between the church acquiring vast wealth from us on the basis of the dubious and specifically provably inaccurate doctrinal claims they listed in their submission to the court. It raised a lot of still unanswered questions about how much the law should protect organisations taking money from people on the basis of demonstrably false claims, like there being a global flood that killed all but one family of humans and all but two of every animal species on earth a few thousand years ago. If con men can be convicted for swindling people out of money on the basis of lies and untrue stories, why should it make a difference if the lies are framed as religion? I don't think this is the last we have heard of that playing out in the courts, and predict that one day Bloor and Phillips will be seen as pioneers well ahead of their time. 
As the newspaper speculated about whether President Thomas S. Monson would actually have to stand in the dock in a court in London to answer to the charges, for the first time we realised that these men are not invincible and untouchable, that there are many ways we can hold them to account for their lies and crimes as they abuse their power in a frenzy of wealth hoarding, and what Doctrine and Covenants calls unrighteous dominion that immediately deletes their priesthood authority according to Doctrine and Covenants section 121. As Stephen Bloor said at the time of the legal case, quote, I truly believe that progress requires conflict. I believe that my only path is to follow truth, wherever that may lead me. My integrity to the truth had led me here. I had no other choice. That's just the way I am. I knew this would be difficult, but believed truth is always worth struggling and maybe suffering for. Close quote. Exactly what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Hugh B. Brown taught in all those sermons. Progress requires conflict. What a perfect slogan for this struggle and podcast, and what all the dissidents who leave the church or leave certainty about it and yet cannot leave it alone are doing it all for. It's for progress the prime directive of the Christian Mormon plan of salvation, and it requires conflict, or, as the Book of Mormon teaches, opposition in all things. Sometimes that opposition is loyal opposition, not just an evil or bad choice as an alternative to good options. And sometimes it looks like evil attacking good when it is actually the other way round, just as Jesus was condemned and eventually executed for attacking the corruption, hypocrisies, and bad leadership in high places in his religious institution. All I would add to that, as I follow a similar path for the same reasons, is that this is exactly what the church taught our generation to be like. To be lifelong learners. To be curious to know more about all of everything. To have integrity. To expect the church and its leaders to practice everything it preaches with integrity and exactness. To take responsibility for holding leaders accountable as an essential component of how we support and sustain them. To do what is right to hold on to truth and integrity and let the consequences follow, whatever the sacrifices involved. For Stephen Bloor and I and many other Latter day Saints, it has cost us excommunication and very fraught disruptions to our friendships, marriages and family relationships. But the church taught us that all of that is trivial compared to the far more important matters of truth and integrity, and being able to live with a clear conscience that we chose the right and did not flinch from what would follow. I want to take a moment here to acknowledge and reaffirm that many alternate paths to this one of martyrdom and activism are just as reasonable and virtuous. Some people conclude that the church and its values and anxious perfectionism have already taken far more from us in sacrifice and suffering than was ever reasonable. We already gave that worldview and that church community more than enough of ourselves. 
So if to get some healing from those wounds and have a more comfortable life that is already more than full up with normal sacrifices and complications, the right thing to do is to simply walk away from the church and stop caring what happens to it or its people. That's the right thing to do for you. If the right thing for you to do is be pimo, physically in but mentally out, in order to keep the peace in your marriage and family, then go for it and good luck to you. You can think for yourself and make your own choices about what to prioritise in the little time you have left walking this earth. There are dozens of really awesome and fulfilling projects I've had to abandon or put on hold in order to devote the little time I have available to this cause. And one day, I may wish I'd done them instead, at which point my wife will laugh her head off and give me a well-deserved Glasgow kiss. But for now, this is my choice and I'm having a blast. As Joseph Smith said in Doctrine and Covenants 123, if you're going to waste and wear out your life in a good cause, at least do it cheerfully. Anyway, as you can imagine, I was somewhat naively poking a massive hornet's nest in poor Helston Ward with my talk, urging people to face up to the problems threatening to ruin our religion that are coming from within our culture rather than from the wicked world outside. Immediately after that sacrament meeting, one of the older sisters in the ward pulled me aside in a corridor to tell me she really appreciated my talk, that I was ahead of my time, and that I would never be asked to speak in their ward again, and then we fled for the border. The happy postscript is that a year or so later, when we ventured back, I had a lovely friendly chat with the same bishop. He had calmed down from his fury. He said it is important for us to be honest about the problems in the church and talk about them so we can resolve them. Effectively repeating back to me all the key points I'd made in my talk that had upset him so much. Experiences like this have shown me that the most hostile, ordained, and self appointed guardians of control and orthodoxy in the church can be persuaded by words and lived experience to change, to open their minds to a better way, and being more realistic about the challenges we face and the reforms that will be necessary if the church is to survive. But the time left for this to happen in time is far spent, and there is little, if any, remaining. So, this mini-series is going to be my last push to make the case for these reforms. Not the last of the podcast, but I'm going to make the case as strongly as I can that the collapse of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' active membership, from which it will never recover without speedy and radical reforms, is predominantly the fault and responsibility of the faction of general authorities who now dominate its priorities, doctrines, practices and culture. That despite claiming to be the guardians of Christ's values and religion, they are making the entire list of 15 or so disastrous mistakes that Jesus excoriated the Pharisees and Sadducees for wrecking his religion with 2,000 years ago. As I taught at my talk at Helston, Jesus taught his disciples to beware the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew 16, 
Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Luke 12. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Matthew 23. Then spoke Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Close quote. So Jesus didn't object to the Pharisees teaching the law of Moses to the people. His main concern was that they were not practicing what they taught. Many of them were hypocrites. There were also several other things the Pharisees got wrong that concerned Jesus. Number one, distancing themselves from the ordinary sinners who need the gospel the most. Matthew 9. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Number two, smug complacency, assuming they are okay and superior because they are God's people, descendants of Abraham, or members of the true church. Matthew 3 has John the Baptist teaching this. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the regions round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Number three, attributing good things they are not personally controlling or directing to Satan. Matthew 9. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man, possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees saith, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Number four, more concerned about the rules than human needs and spiritual priorities, making them merciless. Mark 2. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride's chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did? When he had need, and was unhungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Matthew 12. But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. 5. Conspiring to ostracize and remove people who didn't follow their concept of what is appropriate because they felt threatened. Matthew 12. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much, then, is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out, and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Number six, forgetting that all good is from God. The Pharisees said the good Jesus did was evil or from Satan, because it was different to what they were used to. Matthew 12. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Matthew 12. Either make the tree good, and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. Number seven. Good can only come from within the church. Jesus pointed them to examples of outsiders who showed more real faith and who are greater in God's judgment. 
Matthew 12. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Number eight, burdening and crushing the people with extra rules and traditions that are not necessary, and that they will not follow themselves. Matthew 23, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The New International Version puts it, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Number nine, seeking status and power. Matthew 23, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Number 10, their behaviours and teachings actually prevented people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land, making one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Number 11, silencing people proclaiming truth that they are uncomfortable with. Luke 19, and they brought him to Jesus and cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Number 12. So focused on concepts of what righteous behaviour should be, they could not notice the miracles or trust the miracle worker. John 9. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Number 13. Not having the courage to speak the truth, if powerful people will ostracize and punish you for it. John 12. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Just imagine how much it would have helped if general authorities who knew there was something wrong had been braver and did this regarding racism and other issues that have caused so much human suffering and ravaged the church's reputation and integrity. In the early days, in Joseph Smith's lifetime, many general authorities did go public with their concerns about his polygamous adultery and financial corruptions and were immediately excommunicated, but far too few in modern times have broken ranks. Number 14. Robbing the poor until they are destitute as a religious duty in order to hoard money and spend it on the temple instead of giving it to those poor people as the scriptures about tithing command. Matthew 23 Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold, or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. In Mark 7, he condemned the Pharisees and Sadducees for taking money that people were meant to spend looking after their parents, as the Ten Commandments, including the obligation to honour your parents, commands. The greedy general authorities had invented a workaround that if they declared it to be a sacred gift, what they called Corban, they could give their money and property to the temple instead of supporting their parents with it in their old age. 
Mark 7. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honour thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mayest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered. And many such like things do ye. Close quote. There are countless similarities going on in the LDS church today, as the church teaches the destitute to pay tithing before feeding their hungry children, and robs the elderly of their pensions and retirement savings by making them pay $20,000 or more a year to serve as missionaries, even though they have made a fortune of hundreds of billions from those same people's tithing donations already. Some even sell their homes to pay for these missions. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. The LDS apostles literally rob widows of their home, as well as urging them to leave their inheritance to the church rather than their children, and just can't see a problem with this. Number nine on this list, seeking status and praise, quoted Matthew 23, in which there are actually three more very specific signs that your religion has become the religion of the Pharisees. Number 15 on the list, then, is virtue signalling through clothing. Matthew 23, verse 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. It wasn't enough that the temple priests had symbolic robes to wear when officiating in temple rituals, and that all the Jewish boys had their foreskin cut off eight days after their birth as a visual indicator of their covenants. The Pharisees believed the way to be extra righteous was to expect village preachers like themselves and all the ordinary people to follow some of those ritual clothing rules, so that their religiosity would be much more visible and public, and thus easy to judge. And in their enthusiasm, they even exaggerated and extended those man-made traditions to show themselves to be the most faithful in their pride and hubris. They had extra long tassels on their clothing, and the leather boxes with scriptures on worn on their forehead or arms while praying were much bigger boxes than everyone else's boxes. Number 16. Expecting to have special privileged seats at church meetings and social occasions. Matthew 23 verse 6. 
and loved the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Number 17. Special titles to be called by. Matthew 23, verses 7 to 10. And greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So Jesus gave us at least 17 very specific reasons why he led a rebellion against the chief priests and entire leadership class of his religion. They are clearly explained. There is nothing ambiguous about any of them. They are a clear warning to us all never to allow ourselves and our churches to tolerate or institutionalise officially or culturally anything remotely similar to these crimes against his religion and his values if we want to be his disciples or claim to be witnesses and examples of his religion in the world. Surely, with such clear teaching in the New Testament, you would have to be a very special kind of totally stupid to be doing any of these things now. Yet, pretty much every Christian denomination today is doing at least some of them, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is now doing the entire list with bells on. If you want to watch a TBM Latter-day Saints squirm and instantaneously perform for you, on demand, a triple salco of mental gymnastics, you don't have to challenge them with anything complicated from church history, or about polygamy, or black people and the priesthood. Entertaining and revealing those conversations always are. You simply need to go through Jesus' own list of key indicators of religious corruption from the New Testament. The most experienced, venerable, wise, apparently saintly Mormon will quickly reveal just how twisted and corrupted their Christianity really is, and how much they have betrayed and sold their Christian souls at the altar of idolatrous prophet worship. If they have to choose between Jesus or the culture and president of the LDS Church, they will choose, in front of your face, the culture and president of the church every time. Just try it. The message of this podcast miniseries is that after a long and very complicated journey of listening, debates, researching and analysing the really complicated entangled mess of doctrine and policy and politics and culture the church has tied itself up with, the core problems and their solutions are much more simple than I ever thought they would be. It doesn't get any simpler than you claim to be Christ's true church, but you are doing the entire list of things he forbade Christians to do. Therefore, unless you change, you are definitely not Christ's true church, or even basically functional Christians. And we aren't talking about arcane disputes regarding whether the Sabbath should be celebrated on a Saturday or a Sunday, or Bible translations, or how to baptise people. 
it's really basic, indisputable and easily scripturally fact-checked stuff. So let's recap the list and apply it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Number one, distancing from sinners. Like the Pharisees, our leaders urge us not to associate with or socialise with the sinners in case they will influence us for bad and contaminate us and our children. Thus, like them, we significantly reduce our ability to be an influence in the world or encounter, understand and develop close friendships with the sinners we are meant to be saving and convincing that we have something better in our lives than they have. Number two, smug complacency. The self-soothing narrative that the restored gospel is here to stay and invincible till the second coming that Mormons are the chosen people of God in the only true church, and there is no need to worry or change anything as their congregations evaporate before their eyes, has to be seen to be believed. It's always the weakness and the fault of the people who leave, not ours for driving them away. I'm seeing it every week now. Number three, good things they did not start or control are satanic as Ahmed Corbett taught us just in the last General Conference, as well as his anti-activist diatribe, nothing good can come from outside the church general authorities, and even wanting to protect your own children from harm is evil if it means disagreeing with the brethren. The First Presidency and Sister Wendy Nelson are regularly teaching us not to trust any source of information other than the prophet. Number four, rules come before needs, so they are merciless. We have probably all seen an officious, judgmental Jobsworth thinking they are being holy set fire to years of effort and nurturing by parents and primary and youth teachers when they humiliate and turn away a teenager from a conference or a dance because they are showing their pawn shoulders or have the wrong hairstyle, or are just wearing the wrong colour shirt. They sell that person's life in the church and its belief system for a cheap, judgmental mess of Pharisee pottage. And actual prophets proclaim for years that the God of the universe has decreed that girls and women must only have one pair of earrings, and definitely not drink coffee, or they cannot go to heaven. Number five, conspire to remove people exposing your errors. There is a long and ongoing track record of persecuting and excommunicating people who tell and publish the truth about the church, its history and the unethical, hypocritical and illegal activities of its prophets and apostles. They even have a secret thought police spy organisation called the Strengthening Church Members Committee monitoring everyone's social media chats and leaning on the local leaders of the dissidents to discipline them. Been there, done that. Number six, they forget that all good is from God. Quoting Ahmed Corbett again in his personal essay on race and the priesthood that the church has placed all over the CES teaching curriculum, the Mormons deciding in 1978 to stop being racist was the moment that God unleashed a transformative miracle in the whole world that changed everything and proclaims the glory and truth of this religion.
centuries of emancipation, wars of liberation, and other churches leading the way to end slavery in the British and other empires that sorted that mess out long before the Mormons finally reluctantly stopped racially segregating, when they literally had no choice left but to do so, don't count for anything, and weren't anything to do with God. The people advocating for the church to stop being racist back then were satanic activists towards the church. They were wrong, wrong, wrong to be so presumptuous. Modern telecommunications and satellites all happened so that people could watch General Conference live in other countries. The progress in women's rights, racial equality, civil rights for LGBTQ people and all the stuff the church has eventually come round to, with the evil satanic world being dangerously progressive and threatening the institution of the family, not doing God's work. Number seven, good can only come from inside the church. If the prophet doesn't say or approve it, don't do it and don't believe it. Number eight, invent unnecessary extra requirements that the leaders don't practice themselves. The classic recent example of this was President Nelson having his amazing revelation, Sherry Jew has gone on the speaking circuit describing in awe, to have seven days of giving thanks in social media every day. None of the 15 prophets, seers and revelators did all seven days, and two of them posted nothing at all. But hundreds of thousands of church members scurried to exactly obey the prophet, like those same apostles keep telling them to, and posted apologies if they missed a day. They teach that if you have to choose between feeding your children with your last pennies or paying tithing, you must pay the tithing first but then insist that they have salaries in the top 5% of pay scales in the richest countries on earth, so that general authorities never ever come anywhere close to having to make those kinds of apparently crucial faith-testing choices, paid for from the tithing those starving poor people are giving to the church instead of feeding their own children, even though the Old Testament is clear that tithing should be given to the poor, never taken from them. Number nine, seek social status and power. The endless parade in church newspapers of pompous awards that the general authorities give and receive with high status political and cultural officials has always been sickening, and President Nelson was so desperate for a photo opportunity with the Pope, he had a white elephant temple built in Rome replicating Renaissance Catholic sculptures of all the apostles in the now obligatory Christus idol worship area to get his attention that is now probably mostly shut and empty for most of the week as there are only a handful of Mormons in all of Italy. But the giant, literally golden statue of Joseph Smith that Apostle D. Todd Christofferson went to dedicate in some kind of religious hall of fame in India was so ridiculous it was sublime. I would argue, even more obviously demonstrating the wrong priorities, seeking status instead of doing its spiritual work has been the key city's PR effort of the church pouring man and woman hours and money and effort 
into schmoozing influencers and politicians in cities like London, while no effort whatsoever was made to actually stop the struggling urban congregations in those same cities from collapsing. Especially Welling Ward in Greater London that has been there since 1841 and used to be the top baptising ward in Europe when I was its ward mission leader, entirely due to the missionaries, not me, I should make clear, but has still not been given its own chapel. Now it has been decimated back to branch size under this intentional neglect. Welling Ward has been fobbed off with a grotty working men's club with four parking spaces to meet in, while the church spent £103 million on an office block and then £70 million on an Amazon warehouse as Enzyme Peak commercial investments with Welling Ward's tithing donations. Maybe those key cities people and their talents could have been directed instead towards preventing the closure of three stakes in London this year, instead of giving statues and leather-bound genealogies to members of Parliament, who have since disappeared from government and power just as quickly as those stakes did. Number 10. Behaviour and teaching that prevents other people reaching heaven. Very simply, Jesus identified these 17 corruptions as deal-breakers for being his disciples and if you join this church now, you will be expected to not only tolerate, but justify all of them as religious obligations. And if we did have the truth, these behaviours are assertively driving people away from it. Number 11. Silence people telling uncomfortable truth. It is repeatedly made clear that whatever your private opinions are, the second you say anything contradictory to the assumed correct script in your ward and stake, you will immediately be condemned for apostasy, told you are being contentious, and that is of the devil, and if you persist, you will be disciplined and shunned, spiritually executed. Number 12. Can't recognise miracle workers not following their rules. The progressives and activists who brought about all the legal protections, cultural changes and innovations that Latter-day Saints benefit from and take for granted now, and would never want to give up, were all relentlessly opposed at some point by the LDS general authorities. They opposed emancipationists trying to end slavery. Doctrine and Covenants 134 verse 12 literally forbids encouraging or supporting the emancipation of slaves. Quote, we believe it is just to preach the gospel to the nations of the earth and warn the righteous to save themselves from the corruptions of the world. But we do not believe it right to interfere with bond servants, neither preach the gospel to nor baptise them, contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least, to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situation in this life, thereby jeopardising the lives of men. Such interference we believe to be unlawful and unjust, and dangerous to the peace of every government, allowing human beings to be held in servitude. Close quote. They opposed Martin Luther King's civil rights movement in general conference. 
They opposed equal rights for women and wives and mothers continuing their education and having careers. Hypocritically, they now appoint to the general presidencies of the church's women's organisations women who specifically disobeyed those instructions and chose to complete their education and professional training and be working mothers, choosing them over the obedient ones because they actually have the skills and real-world leadership experience from those secular lives they need to do the church job properly. The church has never led the world in anything except Caucasian polygamy. It has not been the prophetic voice of a more ethical and better future. The people it condemned as threats to our faith and values turned out to be the real prophets, the real ministers, the real visionaries, the real champions of the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalised, like Jesus was. But they have no shame about this and still call themselves and their useless predecessors prophets, seers, and revelators. Number 13. Stay silent about truth because you will be shunned for saying it. If you spend any time in the dissident and nuanced Mormon space, you soon start to experience personally, or hear from others, about the local and general leaders who fully understand that this is all unacceptable that the church is really not firing on all cylinders, and that it harms the poor and vulnerable people it should be helping. They make reassurances that reforms are in the pipeline, that the brethren have it in hand to do the right things eventually. But they never say this in public, and the changes never come, or only come in tiny increments, usually because they've been forced to come by activists, investigative journalists and governments. These men are just like the moral cowards among the temple priests and Pharisees who knew Jesus was right, but stayed silent about it when it mattered because they did not want to lose their in-crowd social status and access to power and money. Number 14. Take money for the temple and church until people are destitute. No need to say any more about this, as I've been presenting the evidence that this has become the church's prime directive for years, and there will be plenty about this in the next episode. Number 15 on the list is virtue signalling through clothing. Mormons have turned this into an art form. Not only have we added sacred underwear to the uniform, we have people claiming to be prophets of Jesus banging on endlessly about how you absolutely can and should judge your and other people's righteousness and spirituality by the smartness of their clothing, even though actual Jesus taught us not to be so foolish as to judge people by their appearance. These latter-day Pharisees forbid you to pass the sacrament if you don't have a white shirt on, one of Dallin Oaks's pet peeves, they totally obsess about the pawn shoulders and hemlines of even tiny girls. Backed up by appalling body-shaming articles in the church's friend magazine for children, and have only in 2023 decided that maybe university students can wear shorts at all the church's schools. It is still completely normal for a woman coming to church on a Sunday in trousers 
to be patronisingly corrected by her sisters. Number 16. Expecting to have special privileged seats at church meetings and social occasions. Even though Jesus specifically condemned seeking the upper rooms and privileged reserved seating at synagogues and socials, when the Mormons started building temples, they included in them an upper solemn assembly room, not only with special reserved seating for the priesthood hierarchy, they even put their initials on the seats. And in every meeting and service, the clergy sit by rank on a stand at the front and have the sacrament passed to them first. Number 17. Special titles to be called by. Can you imagine going to the LDS church and no one is called elder, president or bishop instead of their names? Jesus flatly forbade this, but we have made it fundamental to our communication with each other. Everyone is in a hierarchical power relationship to each other, reinforced by these titles, all of which Jesus told us never to do. So why on earth are we doing it? I took a punt making this point when we were discussing these verses in Gospel Doctrine this year, and asked why our apostles and prophets expect us to stand when they enter or leave a room, as if they are royalty. I was, again, presented with an instant performance of Olympian mental gymnastics from the teacher and my classmates, explaining why their need to respect their office and the church being right about everything overrides what Jesus actually taught. It was depressing. I kind of hit the wall I keep urging people to push through of giving up on ever getting these people to see the obvious about why our congregation probably won't exist anymore five years from now, and entered the acceptance stage of grief about their inexcusable stupidity. I even started breaking my leaders and systems, not people approach of focusing my ire on the people who brainwashed them, not the victims. But really, there does come a point where I think it's reasonable to expect grown adults, however brainwashed, to realise that when Jesus forbade something, we definitely shouldn't be doing it or making excuses for it, whatever the justifications offered. If they can't even get something that obvious and easy right, how are they ever going to navigate ordaining women and sealing same-sex marriages in the temple, which will eventually happen, just like all the other things they said would never change in the church and ended up changing? As we learn from George Orwell's Animal Farm, when your leaders are now justifying and indulging in every single abuse of power and unrighteous dominion they once led a revolution against, it's time for another revolution. The overall message of this podcast is that this tension and eternal war between two ways to do religion is powerfully and gloriously understood and explained in Mormon theology, as well as those very clear teachings of Jesus in his conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It features right from the start of Mormonism's universal timeline with the war in heaven that happens before the creation of the world. It continues today in every ideological movement, and according to the temple endowment, in every world that is populated with sentient life forms. 
whether it is in government and politics, religion or the business world, how a community organises power, leadership and decision-making tends to fall into two camps. Dictatorship versus democracy. A hierarchical, feudal system where you are born into privilege and power or poverty versus an egalitarian, meritocratic society where you thrive based on your personal effort, skills and choices. Hoarding wealth and power into the hands of a few well-connected individuals and families and their nepotistic friendship groups, or making sure your systems listen to and prioritise the needs of the most vulnerable and poor in your society, so no one is left behind. The philosophy and ethics of your community being dictated and changed randomly based on the personality, whims, and biases of a king or dictator, or adhering consistently to core values and making changes by discussion and then consensus or majority voting to ensure they are carefully thought through and make things better for the whole community rather than worse. The difference between judging success by having everyone conform to one carefully controlled homogenous way of thinking, speaking, dressing and behaving as they perform identical, easily measurable actions and rituals, in opposition to success being the empowerment of every individual to be their best selves, to discover and develop their unique combination of personal strengths and talents and contribute these to our shared society. To simplify, I use the language of the New Testament and call these opposing worldviews in Mormonism, Pharisee Mormonism and Christian Mormonism. There are four big ideas I love most in Mormon theology, which I believe give it the potential to resonate with the modern age and become a significant global religion. They are the foundations of Mormon Christianity as a rational faith. A rational faith overlaps with the ideas of secular philosophy and secular humanism. It depends fundamentally on making sense of our existence and our lived experience of it, rather than telling us to just be superstitious, mystical, that our lives here and now are an illusion, a distraction or a disastrous mistake compared to the real reality or the plan God has for us. Rational faith requires a lot more proof of truth claims than a warm fuzzy feeling and an engaging story. To generalise, Eastern religions are mostly about realising our mortal lives on earth are a distracting illusion of desires and connections. Salvation involves disconnecting from these illusions, rediscovering that you are a fragment of the universal God or God consciousness, and progressing or escaping to moksha or enlightenment, where you are fully reunited with your true nature as a part of God. The Bible-based Western religions of Judaism, Islam and Christianity also mostly treat how we are living now as a distraction from the true path. We are living in God's plan B after the disaster of the fall in the Garden of Eden that has imprisoned us in bodies and a world that is contaminated and ungodly. 
the big secret of Scientology that we are afflicted as part of the human condition by billions of ancient alien Thetan souls who are brought here by Xenu, the ruler of a galactic confederacy, and nuked next to earth volcanoes with hydrogen bombs 75 million years ago, is pretty wackadoodle, but surely no stranger or any less cruel than the traditional biblical god, who has decided during a tantrum with a couple of naked hippies to punish billions of humans with a terrible life of sin and suffering, and then consign a significant percentage of them to an eternity of torture because they don't show enough worship and gratitude to the sadistic master of the universe who did this to them. Or the eastern deity, who fragments itself into souls and forces them into an eons-long torment of reincarnations as every life form, ruthlessly punished in each new incarnation for the weaknesses shown in the last one, until they eventually make it through and return to unity with God, who then does it all over again, endlessly. For all his terrible ideas, Joseph Smith could see that this did not make sense, or conceptualise a truly loving and parental God. He and the better Mormon theologians ran with the revolutionary idea that God doesn't do plan Bs, or deceive us with illusions, or waste our time. They taught that how we are living now is plan A, is exactly how it is meant to be. The fall was an essential fall upwards to knowledge and divinity, exactly as Genesis says, when the gods realise humanity has taken a big step towards becoming like them and having their knowledge. Our physical bodies are just going to get better and better, rather than be abandoned at the first opportunity. Everything we are and experience has valuable eternal purpose as a step in our eternal progression and learning, because the understanding, personality and relationships, or sociality, to use Joseph's word for it, that we experience now will continue with us into the next life. We won't wake up as someone else. Therefore, we are meant to engage in the world around us as it is, learn everything we can about it and from it and about ourselves, use the brains our bodies give us to discover and make judgments about truth, and work out our own salvation by learning and choosing how to think and love well. We are also here to develop our creativity, to make art, literature, dance, music, architecture, and genetic engineering, because one day we will make and populate worlds with countless life forms and guide their civilizations. Our religion is meant to be a bit Star Wars and very Star Trek, not the medieval Catholic Inquisition or the caste-obsessed Hindus spitting on the untouchables and banning them from their homes and temples and condemning marriage to them. Mormonism has sadly gone down an identical path repeatedly in its treatment of black people as deserving of segregation and shunning because of their sins in a past life, and now demonising LGBTQ people, 
but it has some delightful positive connections to Eastern religions too. It shares the idea that our life spark of intelligence is eternal and has the potential to become a god and unite with the universal god consciousness, or council of the gods in Mormon jargon. So, the first of the four brilliant big ideas I particularly love in Mormonism, and that define Christian Mormonism to me, is that God actually wants us to become gods too, if that's what we choose for ourselves. That this is the big purpose of our lives, our civilization, our intelligence as human beings. There is no limit to our ambitions and potential. Mormonism shares the overarching goal of the Eastern religions like Hinduism and its children Buddhism and Sikhism, where every soul has the potential and opportunity to learn and progress all the way to deity in what is possible in personal development, rather than hit the many glass ceilings most Western monotheistic religions impose on our ultimate potential, and what they think being in heaven involves as some kind of grovelling ant farm choir camp drinking nectar and praising God, rather than being God. The second big Mormon idea I love is its understanding that freedom, democracy, education and pluralism are the only ways for people to be safe, to flourish and to learn how to progress and become gods themselves not unthinking obedience and subservience to someone else doing all your thinking for you and everyone looking and behaving the same. That, as our Articles of Faith teach, we cannot claim the right to live and believe as we choose to without extending the same rights to everyone else. To do unto others as we would have them do unto us regarding freedom and civil rights. The third big idea I love is that along with the eternal civil war between freedom and dictatorship, the developmental journey of the true covenant path leading us to knowledge is a collaboration between God and human civilization. That we are not forced to be good and perfect, which is the plan of the evil baddies in our mythos and philosophy. That God is a parental guide by the side as we personally and collectively learn and evolve our civilization, adapting his commandments and doctrines to the level of sophistication our culture can handle. That the true faith began as a patriarchal religion in the era of Abraham, based on families and tribes, when that was how human society was mostly organized. That it stepped up to the laws of Moses, and how religion and laws could function in the more sophisticated but still brutal, constantly warring and competitive, larger-scale Bronze Age nation-states in Sumer, Egypt, Assyria, the Indus Valley in Pakistan, Greece, Israel, and so on. Then, the even more developed and personally empowering Christianity of Jesus and his apostles and globe-trotting missionaries like Paul for the Iron Age of Empires that created regional law and order, safe international travel, and enabled a kinder, gentler, and more generous sophistication. And then the 19th century restoration reboot 
in the rapidly progressing and spreading completely global scientific and industrial age after the Enlightenment that is best suited to modern democracies. Ours can be a rational faith making sense of the arc of history. Just as creation has involved setting up the physical, chemical and biological conditions for life to begin and evolve over time in its sophistication, the social evolution of humanity through remarkable developments has been set in motion by God and we are learning mostly for ourselves with the occasional nudge from the Almighty. Of course, it is just as reasonable to look at that timeline and the evolution of the Bible-based Judeo-Christian Islamic religion and see in it a whole bunch of people making God and God's laws in their own image and having to keep rewriting and updating their beliefs in order to keep up with secular social developments. But if we choose to see it as part of God's plan, there are lots of exciting possibilities for what the next stages will look like. What a living and relevant religion needs to incorporate as we develop unimaginable computing power and artificial intelligence is anyone's guess. The Mormonism-friendly idea of God as a superior life form living near a powerful star determining his experience of time in our actual physical universe, who is a product as well as creator of reality, a technological scientist working with natural laws in the physical, but apparently much more weird than we ever expected, multiverse of quantum physics that only appears supernatural until you understand it, is now becoming much more believable. If you want to take a fun dive into those possibilities, check out Mormon transhumanism that explores how our advancing technology could prove to be the path to accomplishing the divine powers and world-building our people have prophesied or just imagined. And then imagine how and why on earth it is, in a world teeming with those developments and possibilities, that we are kowtowing to grumpy great-grandfathers from a parochial yesteryear in backwards Utah, whose imagination for what the exaltation of humanity involves only extends as far as telling people they must watch their hemlines and take the sacrament with their right hand, not their left one, and definitely only one pair of earrings. Wearing two pairs of earrings and drinking coffee will stop you becoming a god. According to its own scriptures, at every stage the Lucifer Pharisees have tried and often succeeded in derailing God's religion. Bad kings in the Old Testament and Book of Mormon derailed it. Power and money-focused priests and rulers corrupted it under Roman rule. Christianity became the tool of privilege, control of the poor, and hostility to science and progress in the Catholic Roman Empire that succeeded the pagan one which executed Jesus and a lot of other Christian martyrs. Today, it is the dissidents who have escaped from the mind-forged manacles of these nearly-dead incompetents in our church and others, who are keeping a small flickering flame of hope alive for the prophesied future, and are becoming the guardians of true science and religion in the information age, along with the collective hive mind of all humanity. 
Which brings me to the fourth big idea in Mormonism that excites and motivates me. Number four, the crucial caveat the Book of Mormon teaches in 2 Nephi 29, that God has been talking to all the nations of the earth all along. Starting at verse six, Thou fool that shall say a Bible, we have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Have ye obtained a Bible, save it were by the Jews? Know ye not that there are more nations than one? Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath, and I bring forth my world unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth? Wherefore murmur ye, because that ye shall receive more of my word? Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God? that I remember one nation like unto another. Wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. And I do this that I may prove unto many that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that I speak forth my words according to mine own pleasure. And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another, for my work is not yet finished, neither shall it be until the end of man, neither from that time henceforth and forever. Wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all of my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. For I command all men, both in the east and in the west, and in the north, and in the south, and in the islands of the sea, that they shall write the words which I speak unto them. For out of the books which shall be written, I will judge the world, every man according to their works, according to that which is written. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. I love these scriptures so much. I painted them, showing how the cultures and nations, past and present, have represented the animal life in creation in their art, in the regions and scriptures about creation from each of the four standard works, the ancient Middle East of the Old Testament, the Europe of the New Testament, the ancient and modern Americas of the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. I painted Jesus in the middle as an ordinary dark-haired Jewish man rather than a blonde Aryan Norwegian tennis player, and wearing a craftsman's apron as he creates real life forms while human cultures practice and develop their creativity in their art. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. Sixteen words that blow our Book of Mormon and our whole religion wide open to become something exponentially more than badly written biblical fan fiction. 
those 16 words give us permission to free ourselves from the idea that we are the only guardians of truth and the racist idea that only the descendants of the ancient Middle Eastern patriarch Jacob, renamed Israel by God, count, or have received revelations and direct communication from God. Literally everything developed culturally and religiously and scripturally by every culture and tribe on earth since prehistory is our religious playground. We have permission and encouragement from God in the Book of Mormon to go hunting for all the good and wisdom we can find in every tradition, ancient and modern, in the world, and bring it all together into our own beliefs and practices. Every tribe is a chosen tribe. What a daunting but also liberating and exciting idea. To represent this in the painting, I showed just coming into view animal art and written texts from Africa and Asia in anticipation of discovering more from the cultures underrepresented so far in the LDS scriptural canon. I first encountered the mind-boggling idea that Mormonism opens a door for God working through all cultures and religion as a missionary coming across the manual for the Institute course about different world religions for the first time. And the official statement by the First Presidency in 1978, the year they ended institutional racist segregation, stating that God inspired great philosophical and religious teachers like Confucius and Muhammad, which was very unexpected and did not seem to gel with the general idea of our unique and exclusive access to inspiration from God, I was being taught and teaching to investigators. Statement of the First Presidency regarding God's love for all mankind, February the 15th, 1978. Quote, Based on ancient and modern revelation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gladly teaches and declares the Christian doctrine that all men and women are brothers and sisters, not only by blood relationships from common mortal progenitors, but also as literal spirit children of an eternal father. The great religious leaders of the world, such as Muhammad, Confucius, and the Reformers, as well as philosophers including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. The Hebrew prophets prepared the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who should provide salvation for all mankind who believe in the gospel. Consistent with these truths, we believe that God has given and will give to all peoples sufficient knowledge to help them on their way to eternal salvation, either in this life or in the life to come. We also declare that the gospel of Jesus Christ restored to his church in our day provides the only way to a mortal life of happiness and a fullness of joy forever. For those who have not received this gospel, the opportunity will come to them in the life hereafter if not in this life. Our message, therefore, is one of special love and concern for the eternal welfare of all men and women, regardless of religious belief, race or nationality, knowing that we are truly brothers and sisters 
because we are sons and daughters of the same eternal father. Signed, Spencer W. Kimball, N. Eldon Tanner, and Marion G. Romney. Five years ago, in the aftermath of the existential shock and disappointment of the 2013 Gospel Topics essays and the November 2015 policy of exclusion, I set out on a journey of discovery and activism that I never dreamed I would find myself even contemplating, never mind enjoying so much. It is a quest to discover and fix the biggest problem facing my world. Why is my wonderful religion and the church that my whole existence is a product of as a BYU baby, a religion I have loved, researched, defended, and served a mission and a lifetime of church callings for, turned into everything it taught me is the opposite of its core values and doctrines? Why did the apparently Christian Mormons at the top of the leadership pyramid and all around me at grassroots level in my congregations turn into deeply committed and persistent Pharisees after spending so many years teaching and warning me as I grew up never to do that? Why is the church that seemed to be exponentially growing and on the cusp of an inevitable escalation to become one of the world's largest religions? while most of the rest of the world runs away from religion, suddenly stopped soaring upwards in numbers and contemporary relevance? Why is the church I grew up experiencing as a forward-focused, rational faith, able to adapt and keep up with modern times, now bursting into flames and plummeting to destruction and disaster, leaving a trail of carnage in my family and friends' lives as it falls apart? Why are we now fighting each other in an overwhelming battlefield of dozens of problems and failures in every aspect of this religion and its programs as they all fail at once? Missionary programs failing, missionaries coming home early, returned missionaries leaving the church, lifelong faithful leaders becoming disillusioned, and leaving the primary work of their lifetime. The vast majority of the children raised in the LDS Church leaving by age 30. 80% of them globally already in the 2007 Apostle Briefing leaked to Mormon leaks. Parents looking at their baby daughters and deciding they simply cannot allow them to grow up indoctrinated into the third-class status the LDS Church will give them far below men and boys. A message of uniform conformity and submission on whatever a covenant path is to authority figures replacing the empowerment of the individual to discover and run with their unique talents and purpose in life. Sunday school being dumbed down to elementary school level so completely that the First Presidency has just announced that the 2024 curriculum for all ages, from 5 to 85, will be taught from literally the same single manual to rule them all. Doctrines we used to revel in and offer as our unique selling points to the world, ignored and abandoned, and replaced now by clunky attempts of all things to pretend we love the traditional Catholic liturgy and calendar of man-made rituals 
associated with Palm Sunday and Holy Week that we used to condemn as key indicators of the apostasy. The prime identity of Latter-day Saints now being defined as relentless opposition to vulnerable social outcasts like transgender, intersex and gay people. Fast wealth being hoarded in charity fraud and not being used to save the church, even though this is its most desperate hour of need. And most shameful of all, making the most exciting, wacky, multiverse and science-embracing denomination in all of Christendom, utterly boring. So, so boring. Killing off most of its social and arts culture and activities. Forbidding the open-minded discussion and debate in any setting that used to make at least some of Sunday interesting. And replacing it all with endlessly rereading, endlessly boring talks by amazingly boring and uninformed lawyer and business manager general authorities. We talk far more now about asserting their own divinely authorised power and our own powerlessness to even think about disagreeing with them. LDS prophets, seers and revelators now rail against a world that has got so much better in so many Christianity-approved ways, as so wicked and broken it is about to end, and Armageddon and the return of a vengeful Jesus is any minute now. All of this is a jarring contrast to the engagement and hopefulness we got used to as young adults under the leadership of Gordon B. Hinckley and then briefly Thomas Monson before he slipped into dementia. I have always been a nerdy geek rather than one of the cool kids. Artistic, but much more cerebral than physical. My fair share of the bleakly Asperger genes and culturally a very British sense of fair play and not cheating means I want things to make sense rationally, to be consistent, to have integrity and to keep their promises. Growing up, I thought that's what my church was doing and it thrilled me to be part of the solution for all the dysfunctions in wider Christianity. Our religion had tackled and had answers for all kinds of gaping holes in the beliefs of other Christians I encountered as a keen participant in school and university Christian unions and a mission to America's Deep South Bible Belt. We had the essential mechanism of ongoing revelation to cope and adapt to any challenge the developing world threw at us. My mission transformed me from a very publicly shy person who only bore my testimony and fast and testimony meeting once before heading to Alabama as an 18-year-old into a much more confident person, ready to take on teaching as a career. I became willing to engage in discussion and debate and challenge complacency and authoritarianism because, silly me, I thought that's what we were all meant to do as faithful Mormons, like all the role models and teachings in the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and even the Temple Endowment. I learned that even what seemed to be direct commandments from God must be first questioned and challenged before being obeyed in order to understand the reasoning and wisdom in them. 
or to discover if they are actually contradictory. And therefore, we have to make tough choices to prioritize one over another, like Adam and Eve do in the endowment, as an essential component of growing up and gaining the wisdom to be gods ourselves. I and most of my LDS peers were having a great time. Having liberated itself from its institutional racist segregation in the year before I was baptized as an eight year old, and decided to be an inclusive world religion just in time for our teens, the church provided a much more deep and fun philosophical and social life than our secular peers were having. We were learning, coping with the modern world, excited about the future, updating our thinking to take on board new information from historians and scientists and social scientists, and learning to apply our core principles to new situations and knowledge. We assumed our church was learning and modernising too, since that seemed the obvious Mormon way to be. But then everything totally changed, as Dallin Oaks became more assertive in inverse proportion to President Monson's increasing helplessness in the tragic fog of dementia, and declared the family proclamation to be a revelation and essential for us all to believe if we want eternal life, like the apostles used to say about polygamy. Then his ideological soulmate in control freakery, Russell Nelson, who used to run the Strengthening Church Members Committee, began his tenure as president. All of those exciting steps towards relevant modernity became forbidden in a return to control of the church by backward-looking, modernism-fearing fundamentalists in the mould of Spencer W. Kimball and Ezra Taft Benson and Boyd K. Packer whose era we had been led to believe was forever over. Pretty much all of everything just changed and went backwards to the bad old days, and still is, despite a few small victories here and there. So, not surprisingly, nearly all of my peers from that golden age have now left the church, or are barely holding on and looking miserable and defeated watching our children leave. We have been shamed, condemned, and punished for being exactly the principled, fact-finding, analytical researchers, very sensitive to hypocrisy, and willing to make whatever sacrifices we have to, to do what is right and let the consequence follow, that the church taught us to be, from our first lessons as three-year-olds in Sunbeam class. None of those principles end well for leaders drunk on their own power who it turns out have been lying to us for a very long time about a lot of stuff. So now they want the Latter-day Saints to change their principles 180 degrees any time this is convenient for their grip on power. They want Latter-day Saints to stop researching, finding and analysing the facts about the Church's origins, development and the current behaviour of its apostles and only trust and consume what they call divinely appointed or faithful sources of information that they control. The leaders want us to stop expecting integrity and consistency from them, and instead have a very flexible morality that just accepts and believes whatever the current leader in front of us is saying the truth from God is, 
even if it contradicts what they or other leaders and scriptures said it was yesterday or 10 years ago or in Judea 2,000 years ago. In this mini-series, we will be looking at how Elder Haney taught this in the April 2023 General Conference more blatantly than ever before, and how this idea has become their go-to response to prophets being caught in their past and present lies and errors for a while now. The active membership in my country, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which includes England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, and our culturally similar neighbours in the Republic of Ireland and the rest of Europe, has now fallen to around 11% of claimed membership, and is still falling. Tara Burrell, also known by her superhero name Nuance Ho, is a fun, feisty, articulate and wise woman, who has become one of the most popular and powerful voices in nuanced and post-Mormon podcasting. This week, she launched a new project she has titled The Mormon History Hoedown with a vulnerable and powerful episode entitled Why I Left the Mormon Church, Kara's Untold Story. I found it profoundly moving and validating as she spoke of the deep but simple experience of betrayal so many of us have gone through as the church we loved and trusted has betrayed us and all its core principles in this U-turn from somewhat reasonable and hopeful to oppressive and hostile. She perfectly describes some of the aspects of this existential shock so many of us are processing, and particularly the surreal insanity of newly crowned President Nelson throwing his predecessor prophets and all of us who trusted them under the bus because of his titanic ego and personal obsession with not saying Mormon that overrid all common sense and everything we had been taught to expect from inspired prophets. I regularly receive kind messages or have conversations with intrepid Mormon Civil War listeners who thank me for articulating exactly what has been distressing and tormenting them and the relief it gives them to know they are understood and not alone. Throughout the episodes of this podcast, I hope I've done enough to express and share the same gratitude and healing I get from other people articulating my experiences and pain as I thank and quote them. This wonderful podcast from Kara has been one of these oases in the challenging desert of frustration and ignorance that I am wading through as I do battle to encourage reform in a community that mostly doesn't want to change or understand the need for change until it is far too late to help. Here are some treasures from it. That we belonged to a church that told us to be like Jesus, be honest in our dealings with our fellow men, be inclusive and love your family and your friends and your community and mourn with those that mourn. But what do you do when people in your community are mourning and you're told that you are, you're empathizing with the wrong people. And when we, we do act on those things, the authority that once taught us about Jesus Christ is now punishing us for not actually following Jesus Christ as they interpret Jesus Christ. So a lot of the reasons why I left center around a real wholehearted disagreement with who Jesus Christ is. Even if I met you at the he is God table, okay, 
like how devoid of, of the good teachings, the wisdom, the love, the peace of that deity, as I understood it when I was in the church and, and, and as I understand it out of the church, just, it's not in alignment with the God that, that the Mormon leaders teach and the God of the Mormon doctrine, which ultimately likes to tell you that it is the one true church on earth, that the, the book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth and that you can grow closer to God by abiding by its principles than by any other book. And finding that to be wholeheartedly, completely untrue by every single metric that I know of. To begin my story, my parents joined the church while, you know, living lives that were in disarray. But what if the disarray is actually the dogmas that the brokenness that the members feel when, you know, their kids leave or way that when they themselves doubt their faith, that that is actually placed there by men in the religion itself in a way that it is there to further themselves, but in actuality creates the furthest distance from God possible. So it is a journey of me realizing that what if the sacred parts of Mormonism, the temple, all of these things are only sacred to a believer that actually come at a really high cost. And that cost is, is walking all over the actual objective inherent sacredness of each human being and their autonomy. And it does it in the most disrespectful sacrilegious ways and things that, that would, would, would separate someone from their inner knowing and forces them to believe that they don't have the capacity for healthy self-determination without this corporation or its structures. And I think that, again, is just completely out of alignment of what Jesus Christ taught. And we all have these things, you know, in our life that make us feel broken, but the answer is not tying ourselves to dogmas that disrespect the sacred and beautiful within ourselves and to beat up our intuition and force it into submission to believe that we deserve to be separated from our maker. That, that if we don't follow these things, it's us sending ourselves to hell, actually. It makes perfect sense in the plan, right? <laughs> like, I, that There's just nothing that should separate us from our families and separate us from, from our divinity and our power as a means to heal that brokenness. So it's just that type of inflexible thinking and uh, gatekeeping that gatekeeps, you know, your compassion and just makes a mess of some of our best human instincts to serve others. And that at the end of the day is just an idea that when you're Mormon, who God is and what he expects of you only really exists in your head. And everyone else has a slightly different version of what that, that something is, what they, that idea is that is supposed to be a universal truth even, but no one, not even the prophets have an inside track of, you know, what God's mind is as much as they proclaim that they do, if he exists at all. Right. So I, I tell this story, um, and how I came to realize that this faith that I was brought up in was untrue. Um, I hope that you can see that I didn't leave because I hated God and I hated goodness and I just love sin. And, uh, I mean, you're going to think whatever you're going to think from your conditioning. It doesn't matter. But um, 
I, uh, I didn't leave because I didn't want to be called out on my sins or something. It was because I saw the structure. I saw what places elevated my spirituality and my consciousness, but came to realize that I am good, that we are good, that we Mormons, that we are so much better than this church and its hate and its cruelty and its disrespect and its pridefulness. And it needs to be called out. So uh, my parents really don't like that I left the church or talk about it and especially upset that I have kind of drawn this line in the sand um, and I'm starting this podcast, a nonprofit. And of course it makes perfect sense why they would think that all I do is slash and dash the church again to use their words. But um, I know the pain of a faith crisis and I've lived through it and I've interviewed so, so many people and the truth is Mormons, members of the church, uh, you know, they don't really have any rights like any good authoritarian church that claims to speak for God. <laughs> so it's just, what do you do when you, you disagree with those God speakers and you are the one that needs to change? Not them, that there aren't a whole lot of ways, you know, when, when you want to distance yourself from their lives, there aren't a whole lot of ways to leave with your dignity and integrity, to leave as a whole person. And it takes a lot of time and love to deconstruct that. So there aren't a whole lot of ways to reform the church's dogma that, you know, still can corrode minds of people even after they've left. So it's like ex-Mormons, people who come to realize that this church isn't true anymore. It's like, we're just talking here. We're just talking about our experiences. We didn't start this fire. Uh, we are all members of the human race and we have been slashed and dashed first by an unaccountable corporation that, you know, gatekeeps our families and gatekeeps our worth based on the whims of 80, 90 year old, old men. Cause there were other times where I, I really lost a lot of my respect for the prophets, especially after doing so much PR work and then having the, being such a big part of the, I'm a, I'm a Mormon campaign that the church had and, and knowing how much work, you know, my council and the missionaries and stuff when I was living in LA put into the, I'm a Mormon campaign. And I really liked the I'm a Mormon campaign then for after, after Monson died and Russell Nelson took over. I remember exactly where I was in my living room. It was like a moment again that shall live in infamy where I remember hearing Russell M. Nelson on uh, the TV during conference. I was like standing in my kitchen when he said, if you remove the Lord's name from the church and you use the word Mormon, that is a win for Satan. And I just remember slowly turning back to the TV, having like a, what, how did this, are you, are we, did we forget about that whole entire campaign? And then coming to learn that like a lot of people woke up that day and said, you cannot just make this like your little pet project, your pet peeve since the nineties, Russell M. Nelson. Like this is, this is a serious shift in how we understand what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to say. And for one prophet and previous ones to, to like the word Mormon. And for now it's, it's not just passe. It's not just out of style. It is a win for Satan and you speak for God and you oppose Satan. And you are now saying that the last prophet, he worked for Satan and everything that we did on your councils that were directed by your leaders and all of the missionary work and all of the campaign for I'm a Mormon, that was all for Satan is what you're saying. I was like, this is, this is a major deal. This is 
me falling completely out of love and completely changing the respect that I once had for this leadership to know how to guide this church. And it feels, feels kind of good though, at, at the same time to be like that intuition that you've had, that you've known all along that like these 80, 90 year old men, not only are they, they really just men of their time and they prove it year by year. There is an intuition inside you and me and all of us that we are, we are better in line to, to understand God and understand ourselves than these men are because they can't even be consistent from one prophet to the next. This summer, three of the 11 stakes in the London region have been closed, including the Maidstone stake I grew up in and merged with their neighbours. It was in the Maidstone stake that I was taught by prophets and local leaders to expect every ward to become its own stake by now. But that whole narrative has changed now. As I will show you later, Europe area president Hans Boom from the Netherlands, who finished his own mission in my home ward in the 1980s while we were being taught this, has been travelling around like the Grim Reaper, closing these stakes with the message that having stakes with so few wards in was actually a weird mistake all along, and overstretched them as they had to offer up too many leaders to stake callings. There was a time in the church that we thought that growth was to have more stakes. Now we know that real growth is in the strength of man and not in the size or the, uh, the amount of stakes that you have. So turning Maidstone and Canterbury stake I now live in into a super stake of 11 wards is really how we should have done it all along, instead of Gordon B. Hinckley splitting them to encourage and deal with expected growth in 1995. This is just another example of the complete philosophical U-turns while lying about the past and throwing recently deceased prophets under the bus and down the Orwellian memory hole we are getting used to from LDS general authorities now. They don't even hide it or try to be subtle about it anymore. The ideology of realism, honesty and integrity is long gone. And with it, the growth mindset and the reality checks that keep any religious or commercial organisation relevant to its customer base and growing. And Lord knows we are now finding out that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or rather the Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as its more honest legal name describes, is swiftly becoming much more about making vast amounts of money through commercial enterprise than it is about converting the world to Christ. Five years ago, in 2018, I properly put my head above the parapet and appeared on national BBC television with two other much braver souls with far more to lose to advocate for Sam Young's Protect Every Child campaign and petition for much better child safeguarding in our church. Three years later, in 2021, I started this podcast, scaling up from my Facebook posts that got me excommunicated for daring to criticise the leaders. The small glimmer of hope I want you intrepid listeners to bear in mind as I go into one about how much has gone wrong in the LDS Church, 
is that this was a bit of a game changer. It made a difference. Our appearance on TV challenging the church to do better and offering reasoned arguments from doctrine and our lived experiences forced the Europe Area Presidency to issue a statement committing to seeking any improvements to safeguarding it would be made aware of that was read by the presenter at the end of our 15 minutes of fame at Broadcasting House. Final word uh, goes to the Europe uh, area of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who sent us this statement. We share a common concern for the safety and well-being of youth. We condemn any inappropriate behaviour regardless of where or when it occurs. Local church leaders are provided with instructions regarding youth interviews and are expected to review and follow them. A caring, responsible spiritual leader plays a significant role in the development of a young person by reinforcing the teaching of parents and offering spiritual guidance. We express gratitude for the thousands of volunteer church leaders, men and women, who selflessly serve and mentor youth, individuals and families throughout the world. As with any practice in the church, we continually look for ways to improve and adjust by following the Saviour Jesus Christ and meeting the needs of our members. This in turn helped my Canterbury Stake leadership, which had already formulated a much more robust child safeguarding policy than the church's official one, to get on with making it official. After graciously asking me to contribute what I had learned from my professional safeguarding training, as a school teacher, to that policy after that TV appearance. When it became clear that the other stakes in our country were not going to respond to our encouragement to clone the Canterbury Stake safeguarding policy, a prolonged and remarkable dance of strategic, direct action and soft diplomacy by the Britvenger podcasters, consisting of myself, Priesthood Dispatches, Laura and Julian Heath of UK Sunstone, Nemo the Mormon, and led by the relentless 21st century saints and brave stake and area priesthood leaders who shared our concerns and were willing to engage with us despite our controversial reputations, led to a miracle now being reported and discussed across the Mormon news media. The first national implementation of a much more robust system of safeguarding, training, and background checks on everyone working with young people in the LDS Church that resulted from grassroots advocacy and activism not forced by state legislation. Hopefully this stone of professional standard child safeguarding and listening to the ordinary members and local leaders will roll forth and fill the whole LDS world, even if the prophecies about that biblical metaphor of a rolling stone filling the world, referring to the world embracing Mormonism because of our missionary work, are demonstrably proving to be a massive fail. We can make big changes happen. Lots more about that in later episodes of this mini-series. A small handful of committed people and a lot of luck with leadership roulette can bring about big changes in Mormonism when truth and reason are on our side. We have proven, as anti-racism, feminist and academic historian activists have proven before us, that truth can prevail in the Mormon church, but you have to fight hard for it and not give up. You have to ignore or live with being excommunicated. 
you have to ignore or live with terrible rifts it creates in your family as the most fundamentalist family members withdraw from you, tell you not to speak about religion or church politics and culture where their children can hear you, shun you, or even publicly disparage you. You have to ignore or live with the sense of walking on eggshells and rarely being appreciated by the people you are trying to help and don't know any better when you go to church. It can be loads of fun, but choosing the path of the reforming activist is not a game. It is a war, a way of framing things that my stake president repeatedly expressed his discomfort with while excommunicating me, even though our scriptures and hymns are riddled with actual wars and war metaphors we're meant to apply to our own lives. And the global youth leaders of the church are right now running with the idea of a youth battalion, not a peace corps. Fighting in this war of ideas comes at very high costs and sacrifices. All I can say about that is what the church claims about the sacrifices it requires for the benefits it claims to offer. It's tough, but totally worth it. I have no judgment at all for the people who try this path and then burn out, or for a thousand completely correct and sensible reasons have to leave the battlefield. But the war is still happening, and I'm here to recruit you to fight in it if you can. This episode 11 mini-series will be a kind of culmination, a conclusion to a journey. I spent five years asking why this church is crashing, and I now have the clear answers. There are a small handful of very simple root causes of a mountain of complex and difficult to untangle consequences. We can actually do something about them, but it will take a significant scaling up of the courage and determination it takes to win any civil war against a much larger and better funded foe, even if you are the goodies. A few handfuls of podcasting activists and open-minded leaders can't fix the big problems causing the little ones we are slowly tackling. It will have to become a much larger movement of resistance and action, even though it is completely alien to everything the church leaders teach people about their powerlessness to change, oppose or replace them. We already have the numbers to win the war decisively and bring about regime change, but at the moment most of them just leave the church, rather than staying to fight and win. So my purpose is to encourage more of you to stay and fight for it a bit longer, because it will only be a bit longer. Even the Utah-based leaders and critics of the church seem to be beginning to realise this year that the end game is now, and they only have a few years left before the LDS church functionally ceases to exist as more than a tiny provincial American religious remnant like the Mennonites and the Amish or the polygamous Mormon sects. Rather than the generations to bring about incremental change that has been their main strategy for saving and modernising the church. My regular theme in this podcast has been to urge them to look at what is happening here in Europe already and realise it is coming for them far sooner than they expect. That long-awaited epiphany is actually happening in Deseret now, so I'm feeling bouncy and have renewed vigour after wondering if they would ever clock on. 
I've been listening to my earlier, much shorter episodes to remind myself of the journey I've been on. The podcast has been very caught up and even distracted at times, recording, archiving and analysing the evidence from the Apostles' own teaching and policy making that explains their game plan and priorities, and what we have to do to change those for healthier ones that will have integrity and work. Every week they offer up a juicy new scandal or development that is impossible to resist, and I have to keep inserting additional edits into my episodes to keep up. This mini-series has been months in the making, and has about 10 additional updates woven in now. It's been so busy in Mormonland. They have all been perfect for supporting the main points I'm trying to inform listeners about, and thank you for your perseverance keeping up with me on this convoluted journey. But I want to kind of wrap this part of it up now and try not to be so repetitive. Let's get to the point and do something to fix the mess now, instead of just endlessly talking about the mess. Activism needs a simple analysis of the situation that can be simply communicated. It needs to be based on deep and thorough analytical response to the evidence, rather than superficial and missing the real points which is what I hope I and other podcasters have provided beyond doubt in all the detailed analysis we present. So that is an important component of our advocacy and activism. But we need simple rallying cries and slogans too. You may recall I've tried out several along the way. Some were borrowed from great thinkers. Edward Snowden said, When exposing a crime is treated as committing a crime, you are being ruled by criminals. Malcolm X said, If you are not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Charlotte Bronte wrote in her novel Jane Eyre, Conventionality is not morality. Self-righteousness is not religion. To attack the first is not to assail the last. To pluck the mask from the face of the Pharisee is not to lift an impious hand to the crown of thorns. That one's perfect, explaining as it does that exposing the lies and crimes of Pharisee leaders is in no way an insult to Jesus, but it's rather wordy. There have been some great ironic quotes from the general authorities themselves, such as M. Russell Ballard condemning, with no self-awareness at all, Quote, the utterances of uninspired men, limited by their own prejudice and cultural biases, close quote. And the all-time classic rant from David B. Haight in April 1973 General Conference in his talk called Power of Evil, that can never be repeated too many times. Quote, Hardcore pornography is now available at candy stores and supermarkets at popular prices. In the short period of the past 10 years, this country and most of the free world have been converted into a space-age Sodom and Gomorrah, aided by some publishers, movie producers, and even some, some so-called educators. Moral principles have been eclipsed by the blind, ungodly pursuit of pleasure, pleasure at any price, I'd update that to, 
conspicuous consumption and profligate spending by the LDS church are now available at shopping malls, temples and chapels that aren't in Welling Ward's boundaries, for which the tithe payers paid exorbitant prices. In the brief period of the past 10 years, this church and most of Wall Street have been converted into a space-age Sodom and Gomorrah, aided by some Enzyme Peak managers, fake shell company directors, and even some so-called prophets. Moral principles have been eclipsed by the blind, ungodly pursuit of money. More money at any price. Close quote. Also a bit too wordy, really. I loved the great hypocritical line from an official church press release stating, quote, Claims being currently circulated are based on a narrow perspective and limited information. Close quote. There have been more than enough straight-up evil slogans from the church and its leaders, such as, When the prophet has spoken, the thinking has been done, which in a debacle of laziness and poor decision-making, was written unsupervised by a presiding bishopric office minion decades ago as that month's home teaching message in the improvement era and never went away. There is one of Dallin Oakes's elaborate justifications for lying, quote, when truth is constrained by other obligations, the outcome is not falsehood, but silence for a season, close quote. Dallin also said, quote, the Holy Ghost will not guide or confirm criticism of the Lord's anointed or of church leaders, local or general. This reality should be part of the spiritual evaluation that Latter-day Saint readers and viewers apply to those things written about our history and those who made it. Close quote. And my now ex-Mormon bridesmaids mission president's mantra. The Lord is well pleased, but never satisfied. Joseph Smith played a blinder with I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. I've tried a few of my own. Do as you're told. Keep quiet and wait to die. If you can't say something that makes sense, don't say it at all. And there is no justification for the current state of the LDS church being okay. We deserve better. We can do better. We have nearly run out of time to do better. But for now, I'm going to borrow the Brexit slogan all about not being ruled from afar by unaccountable and undemocratic foreign entities, that even if you love membership of the European Union, certainly speaks to our disempowerment as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially when we live far from the American stronghold. Take back control. Specifically, take back control. How to remove incompetent, racist, abusive, misogynist, lying thieves from power and give Christian Mormonism a chance to survive. It is specific about why these leaders and their culture has to be reformed or replaced. It is clear that this is about control and power. And it is clear that we are not talking now about which nuanced form the LDS Church and its doctrines and priorities will take, but whether it will even exist as a viable entity at all. 
the internet connected information age ideological and social environment we inhabit now is ruthless towards lies weakness and complacency small insurgent religions that are not integrated into the culture of a continent and do not stay healthy and competitive get destroyed fast they disappear and become totally irrelevant even the established religions that have had time to get totally integrated into the fabric of society, culture, politics and government, like the Church of England in England or the LDS Church in Utah, are just as vulnerable. Their death takes a bit longer, but they do still die if they become unhealthy and incompetent and irrelevant to people's lives and needs. The Church of England is basically irrelevant now in my country. Hardly anyone goes to it anymore. Its leaders have almost no audience or impact, despite appearances at the recent coronation of King Charles III by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It made the same mistake the LDS leaders have of relentlessly prioritising elderly traditionalists who do not want change and fear the modern world and the young over the needs of the young. Given the choice, they always chose to keep the old faithful and evict the young and questioning from their congregations, passively, aggressively, or most commonly, that Mormon favourite, passive-aggressively. So now their congregations are mostly old, stubbornly set in their ways from a bygone era, and will soon be dead, with no one left to replace them. Total church attendance of all churches in the UK is now lower than 5% of the population, and our national church, the Church of England, only has 600,000 people attending every week in a national population of 69 million. The Church of England was already on the rocks in the 1960s, but it has still lost nearly half of its weekly attendance just in the last 10 years. The last phase of plummeting church attendance as a denomination dies accelerates rather than slowing down, especially when a disproportionate percentage of your remaining active members are the elderly. If the Latter-day Saints here had maintained the growth rates we had in the 1980s, and not alienated 80% of our own children from the church, we could have overtaken that already. We could have had a higher church attendance by now than the Church of Actual England. Let that sink in. This is the scale of our failure on our watch. Those multitudes of people leaving Anglicanism and Methodism and the Baptists and all the other failing denominations should have been walking straight into our church if we had our act together and were really offering the advantages compared to those churches we claim. And I would argue used to be well on our way to offering with integrity before the nutters took over again. But instead, they chose to make our church as unappealing to join in the 21st century as humanly possible. They have killed off the thriving, fun, holistic, intellectual and family-friendly communities and replaced them with dry, arrogant fanaticism, repeating thought-stopping mantras to each other 
in unbelievably boring meetings with almost no social life. They are even now cutting off the lifeblood that used to feed into our lives from studying the scriptures as a whole by dumbing down the curriculum to a few really dull proof texts in seminary and come follow me, family study and Sunday school. Even in the total absence of actual prophetic revelation about the future, the LDS prophets and apostles could have learnt from this fundamental error so many other churches have made. But they are far too prideful now to think that those churches have anything at all to teach them. Even the measurable statistical trends from all the surveys they commission themselves seem to take decades to be noticed and sink in to their strategizing. Far too late. This was demonstrated by recent admissions in General Conference for the first time that the majority of adults in the church have been unmarried singletons since the 1990s. All the First Presidency are now in their 90s. They literally are the stubborn elderly fundamentalists everyone else is sacrificed to appease. The system for getting into those First Presidency positions of power based on unconditional conformity to superiors, seniority through longevity and service, and no retirement emeritus status like they have for 70s, specifically engineers this outcome and institutional collapse. What nearly every Church of England parish did to itself 50 years ago is what the whole LDS Church is doing to itself now. The integrity, ideological and cultural health of a two centuries old community of millions of people that used to be countercultural and radical in its lifestyle and ambitions, has spent the last century being held hostage to the whims of two or three geriatrics slipping into dementia. It's insane. Why expect a different outcome? Even the Catholic popes have started retiring when they can't do the job anymore. This mini-series will definitely not be the end of the Mormon Civil War podcast, as I have a hundred ideas for content and already have prepped, ready to finish editing, episodes about Ahmed Corbett's attack on activism towards the church, the Swedish, Boise and British rescues, and I want to tackle and offer solutions to the whole mess that is the missionary programme, having been a missionary and ward mission leader in three wards, I think. I've had so many callings it's hard to keep track. I want to look more closely at the failed strategies of the officially approved LDS apologists and just recorded a fantastic episode with magnificent Maven. She travelled across the world to experience an English pub and do a running commentary on a fantastic episode of Michelle Stone's 132 Problems Revisiting Mormon Polygamy podcast in which she argues totally inaccurately that Joseph Smith never practised polygamy and was just lovely to Emma the whole time. Then Brian Hales came on to her show and was so authoritarian and rude to Michelle that we started rooting for her. It was a hoot. And I'm constantly working on the script for Mormon Civil War, the movie, that could be chopped up into TikToks and kill two birds with one stone. The next few years, as the general authorities hit total panic mode, half the apostles die of old age and need replacing, and the local leaders stare oblivion in the face, 
are going to be electrifying. The scandals will continue to be scandalous. I predict we will finally discover just how much tithing wealth has been shoveled into the bank accounts of friends and family of the general authorities through the Enzyme Peak and other investments. Watching a power struggle between forward-thinking Englishman Patrick Kieran and racism-excusing, thought-stopping, black fundamentalist Ahmed Corbett, if they both get appointed as apostles as increasingly expected, will be like watching a Wimbledon tennis final. There will always be high-stakes developments and drama going on to analyse and discuss. But while that is all going on, the global active membership of this religion will rapidly fall far below levels we can have any hope of recovering from in the next few years. So, I want to be clear in this mini-series what the root cause of this crash is and what the only way to stop it happening is. So, if people choose to, they can get on now with winning the civil war and kicking off a reformation before it is entirely too late. My intent, here and now, is to radicalise you, to stir you into action. Not radicalise in the sense of withdrawing from normal society and doing extreme things to harm people, but radicalise you in the sense that Jesus aimed to radicalise everyone who heard him speak. He urged them to have the clarity of thought, integrity and moral rigour to question everything and particularly to ask the forbidden question of whether the leaders of their religion and the whole edifice of culture, protocols, policies, lifestyle, doctrines and laws those leaders were intensively indoctrinating them to believe, live by and think by had actually gone off the rails, become corrupted, had betrayed the core values their religion was meant to be protecting and promoting in how society should be, and how we should all think about God, and ourselves, and others. He challenged them with the simple question that really was not that hard to understand and answer. Is what these religious community leaders teach and do actually in harmony with the spirit, the intentions, the values, the whole point of our religion, as originally described and intended by its founders, or have they lost it? In obsessing about the minutest letters of their many laws, had they not only lost sight of the spirit of the law of Moses, but arrived at a point where they were in fact becoming ministers of its opposite, the values and priorities and religion of Lucifer, the fallen angel? And if that is the case, what on earth should you do about it? Jesus' answer was to be reborn in several different ways. One, to do the personal spiritual work to get back to basics, repent and resolve to do better, to stop pretending all is well in Zion and admit their personal and collective sins and betrayal of a precious gift God gave them based on love and compassion and actually practicing what you preach. Number two, and once you were thus empowered, to give yourself the permission the autonomy, the liberation to think for yourself in every given situation, what the real religion asks of you, even if it means breaking the rules of the religious rulers. To save the poor animal drowning in a swamp on the Sabbath 
instead of leaving it to die because of the Sabbath rules about not working on a Sunday. To stop caring about stupid rules about washing your hands ritualistically, to worry more about learning truth and helping people, as the Pharisees criticised his disciples for doing. To feed the hungry with your sacrament wheat and bread, rather than leaving it untouched and useless on a table in the temple, or the tithing bank vault, because it is too holy. 3. To openly, fervently and very publicly challenge and critically analyse the corrupt leaders for their crimes and hypocrisy, as John the Baptist, Jesus and every great scriptural prophet and disciple before and since has done. Number 4. To take action to remove corrupt people from power and positions of influence in the religion's literal and metaphorical temples and synagogues. To flip the money changers' tables and drive them out of the holy places and positions of authority they are desecrating. To vote opposed. And even more dangerously, from their point of view, to simply stop allowing them to impose themselves and their bad habits, the dysfunctions of their family and national culture, their ignorance of doctrine, and their ignorance of the suffering of the poor between you and God. To engage directly with God and beliefs and compassion. To become the curator of your personal religious life. From that moment on, you become truly free. A free agent making your own decisions and free to seek and embrace the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth as best you can determine what the truth is. You become free to re engage with the religion of your upbringing your people. But as you master the skills of questioning everything with an open mind, you slowly neutralize the poison of overwhelming guilt and stress that high-demand fundamentalist religions pile onto you in order to control and dominate you and exploit you for all the time and energy and money you have to give until you're an elderly widow who has lost everything, taking your last penny to the temple to give it to the church that should be giving its wealth to you. You begin to rejoice and celebrate your freedom like Paul did in his letters, as he reveled in the grace and release from guilt he had experienced personally on his journey from fundamentalist Pharisee to Christian. I was very happy to carry that burden of guilt, obligations, stress and feelings of inadequacy when I had no reason to doubt that my religion and church and its leaders were all they claimed to be. The most virtuous enterprise on earth, the salvation of the world, a precious and rare ark of all the very best ideas about how to think and learn and live and treat people. A humble community of humble people with pure motivations to just love and help everyone. I was happy and proud to pay a tenth of my income to help this amazing religion continue to grow and fill the world and make it better. I was proud that we could pay our way compared to the churches I grew up around, constantly passing around the donations plate and desperately fundraising to fix the roof and muster a salary for their priest. 
until it became a huge distraction from meeting the needs of their young people or missionary work, until the young left were not replaced and the building they had spent so much effort preserving had to stand empty or be sold to become a house or a restaurant. I was proud that our leaders were unpaid servants, uncontaminated by wealth and salaries, and therefore free to do everything they did for pure motives. But then I found out that my church had lied to me about almost everything since birth, that its most senior leaders and mission presidents are paid a salary in the top 10% of incomes in the richest countries on earth, probably top 3% when you include the expenses and the tax exemptions. Meanwhile, everyone in the local congregation is doing it all for free and paying extra for the privilege, including the full-time missionaries, with only minute admin and expenses budgets for running a ward and a youth programme and their activities. When I found out that for my entire adult life, making endless sacrifices and always hovering on the red side of debt and overdrafts to keep paying tithing, that they not only had secret salaries no one ever told us about, but they'd been hoarding so much of the money, all of us, from the millionaires to the absolutely destitute, had been shoveling into the envelopes that I shoveled every week into their bank accounts as ward clerk for years. They had secretly become one of the wealthiest organisations in the world, one of the major landowners in the USA one of the biggest players in Wall Street, with investment assets of not just hundreds of millions of dollars, but hundreds of billions of dollars, thousands of millions, more money than most of the nation states on earth generate annually. Far more money than the ludicrous playboy televangelists I was horrified by on my mission in the Bible Belt. Arguably far more liquid asset money than any other religion or Christian denomination on earth, despite our tiny size compared to most of them. The scale of the secret wealth intentionally hidden from us in 13 illegal shell companies by the first presidency and presiding bishopric was so shockingly vast it is still hard to comprehend it. And they did it all with none of us realising and all of us thinking the church was living hand to mouth and needed every penny we could deprive our families of to give to them. And arguably, even more shocking than that betrayal, was the awful brainwashing I watched manifesting all around me when this all went public, and the people who had been robbed in the biggest religious charity fraud of the 21st century bought hook, line and sinker their nonsense as they admitted the church doesn't need their money, but still convince them that they need, for their own vital spiritual health, to give that money to the church that doesn't need it. Knowing only a tiny fraction of it will actually be spent on either the church or the poor. And then I became aware of the ever-escalating court cases, finding the church and its clergy guilty over and over again of ignoring, covering up and facilitating child abuse on a scale that easily matches per capita what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. 
As you disentangle your mind from decades of conditioning, elaborate mental gymnastics to defend the indefensible and the dominoes start to fall in rapid succession. Even though it once seemed impossible and incomprehensible when you saw other people go through it, you start to realise how little in LDS Mormonism is standing up to rational scrutiny and basic ethical tests. Emeritus BYU President Bruce Hafen wrote a book and began a support program in 2018 called Faith is Not Blind to help members find simplicity after the complexity of a faith and trust crisis by putting everything back on their broken shelf and returning to the simplicity of just trusting the church and its leaders and relegating the big issues that disturbed them to a minimally important status. It was well-meaning, but sadly doomed to be pretty useless to most people in real trust crisis, because you cannot put things back on a broken shelf and expect it to hold. It seemed to me that they were only offering reassuring solutions for people having a slight wobble, and worryingly, the book concludes in its chapter titled The Spirit of the Army, another military metaphor, by basically teaching that you should ignore evidence that you have researched and instead decide what to believe and trust based on feelings and what you want to be true, explained in the context of how he and his wife Marie, who co-wrote the book, decided while researching the history of the racist segregation to stop the research and judge the situation by other criteria than evidence. Presumably because their apparently basically very blind faith in the prophets of the LDS church was coming under considerable strain as they realised just how awful and indefensible it all was. This chapter is basically a long-winded excuse for chickening out of intellectual honesty and trying to keep such matters in the pre-internet realm of foggy confusion we can never be sure about and can't really fact-check when their little testimony moths got too close to the flame of reality. Rereading that chapter now, I was gratified and intrigued to discover he included the same Dallin Oaks quote from his book, Life's Lessons Learned, and his party-pooping talk at the B1 celebration commemorating 40 years since giving the priesthood and temple ordinances back to black Mormons, I have focused on a lot in recent episodes. They are the startling statements where Dallin admitted that most of the reasons LDS prophets have given for commandments like the racist priesthood ordination ban and segregation were man-made and unreliable. Quote, I decided a long time ago that I had faith in the command and I had no faith in the reasons that had been suggested for it. Close quote. That's the quote from Life's Lessons Learned, repeating what he first said in an interview with the Utah newspaper. And then the Hafens quotes him from B1, saying, quote, In general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. Close quote. They left off the bit Dallin went on to say and write about the prophets being, quote, spectacularly wrong, close quote, but kudos to them for going there at all. This is confirmation yet again that the quotes from the general authorities 
even those tucked away in less well-known sources that analysts of the church and what its leaders say like me get criticised by TBMs for obsessing about and told are not representative of the dominant thinking among the general authorities, really are as important as we say they are. The apologists like the Hafens trying to address the faith and trust crisis epidemic in the church know exactly how significant it is, that the next in line to be prophet has thrown the majority of their predecessors under the bus in this way, and admitted that they have often taught nonsense, explaining and justifying their commandments made as commandments directly from God. So the only way to continue believing they really are prophets is to believe the impossibly stupid idea they are somehow correct about the commandments themselves while being what Dallin described as spectacularly wrong about the reasons and doctrinal framework for them. We know this is a bombshell. The Hafens know it is a bombshell. They cannot ignore it. And they've decided to go with Dallin's completely irrational and credulity-stretching explanation rather than do the hard work of navigating the prophets sometimes just being totally wrong or intentionally lying when they claim to speak for God, and therefore are far less trustworthy than their version of Mormonism can cope with at all. They included these quotes in the punchline chapter of their book as a crucial component of the mental gymnastics routine they are very happy to train people to follow them in performing. These are literally quotes advocating for blind faith in the church's prophets, as infallible even when the explanations they themselves teach for their doctrines, revelations and commandments are totally wrong. In a book titled Faith is Not Blind. As usual with these people, you just couldn't make it up. The apologists for the church and its leaders carrying on pretty much as they always have and selling the idea that all is well in Zion, that the problem is with us, not making enough effort to ignore evidence and just believe rather than the problem being the leaders themselves, always self-sabotage. They have no self-awareness. They include in their talks and books and offer to the disillusioned precisely the evidence and quotes that have killed their trust in the first place. They seem to have zero self-awareness or understanding of what trust crisis really involves. They claim to have been through it themselves, or understood what others went through with it, but they clearly really haven't, as they don't offer actually helpful solutions. And they contradict themselves. Just like F. Whitney Clayton did, in his April 2017 General Conference talk, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it, they declare they are absolutely not teaching blind faith, then describe and teach textbook blind faith. Mary humbly responded that she would do what God asked without demanding to know specifics and undoubtedly in spite of having countless questions about the implications for her life. She committed herself without exactly understanding why he was asking that of her or how things would work out. 
She accepted God's word unconditionally and in advance with little knowledge of what lay ahead. With simple trust in God, Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. When we decide to do whatsoever God saith unto us, we earnestly commit to align our everyday behavior with God's will. I'm not speaking of blind obedience, but of thoughtful confidence in the perfect love and the perfect timing of the Lord. Only once we have proven our willingness to do what He asks without demanding to know the whens, the whys, and the hows, do we reap the rewards of our faith and our diligence and patience and long-suffering. Real obedience accept God's, accepts God's commandments unconditionally and in advance. I'm not speaking of blind obedience. Real obedience accept God's, accepts God's commandments unconditionally and in advance. They know in their heart of hearts what they are doing, hence being aware enough to know what it looks like, and that they have to make this denial or distinction. But they are not self-aware enough to just be honest with themselves. Intentional ignorance becomes the only way to hold this closely to this amount of trust in the LDS prophet's reliability when you become an apologist, engaging with the disillusioned and start to deal with the reality they have been blown away by. People in the post-Mormon social media groups regularly share how their concerned TBM family and friends give to them or post in their social media pages the most ditzy talks, declaring how infallible and lovely the prophets are, while totally unaware that they are just confirming the creepy and unrealistic blind faith and leader worship they have become allergic to. It's like posting a big box of kryptonite to Superman. One of my lovely elderly relatives recently gave Lynn and I each a copy of such a talk, presumably hoping it would cure our apostasy. I gave the Brit Vengers in our chat group five guesses to identify the worst possible talk you could give to a person in disillusioned LDS trust crisis and Priesthood Dispatches got it in four. Our apostasy-curing gift was the irrepressible Sherry Jew, declaring in her 11th of November 2022 BYU-Hawaii devotional that prophets are the most perfect and reliable people walking the earth, titled Prophets Can See Around Corners. Without help from those who are smarter, the future can look downright scary. So, in a world filled with billions of conflicting voices, where do we turn for the smartest help? Prophets see things we cannot see, because the Lord does nothing but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. This is why prophets make us smarter than any other leaders or influencers on earth. Prophets help us see dangers we cannot yet see 
and opportunities we can't even imagine. Today is no different. Most of the world, and even some of our own members, reject the 15 prophets, seers, and revelators ordained as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not long ago, a young woman your age told me that she was upset by something an apostle had said. Sherry, she said, some of my friends think prophets make mistakes, but I don't know what to believe. Do you think prophets are infallible? Some of you may have that same question. If infallible means perfect, then no. I don't think prophets are perfect. Only one perfect being walked this earth, and he was God. Prophets are mortal and are being tested just as we are. Being ordained as special witnesses of Jesus Christ gives them unique spiritual privileges, but it does not magically absolve them of human weakness. Further, I've never heard a prophet claim perfection. Have you? Can you think of any scriptural prophet who didn't demonstrate some weakness, human weakness? Moroni even acknowledged imperfections in the Book of Mormon. President George Q. Cannon, who served as a counselor to four presidents of the church, said that when it comes to the senior apostle or prophet, quote, it is the Lord's privilege to choose whom he pleases. The man he once preserved is preserved, and if men whom he chooses are fallible, that, that is his business. He requires on our part obedience to his will as it is made manifest through the man whom he has chosen. Close quote. The Lord governs his church through a very unique pattern of presencies, councils, and quorums so that no one person acts alone. President Nelson explained that, quote, the calling of 15 men to the Holy Apostleship provides great protection for us as members of the Church. Why? Because decisions of these leaders must be unanimous. Can you imagine how the Spirit needs to move upon 15 men to bring about unanimity? Close quote. Brothers and sisters, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, acting unitedly, will never send the Church in the wrong direction. And here is why. Because even the prophet is not the head of this church. Jesus Christ is, and he is perfect. Prophets take their instructions from him who knows all, sees all, and understands all things. More than once, I personally heard President Nelson deflect praise for all of the adjustments that have occurred during his administration. Well, I can take instructions he always says, meaning he is always on the Lord's errand. Is there anyone you trust to give you more inspired advice, unaffected by personal agenda, than the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles? My answer. Can you think of any journalist, talk show host, celebrity, athlete, or politician you would trust more than our prophet? How about any entrepreneur, billionaire, or scholar? Any YouTube celeb or star of stage, screen, or Netflix? I can't. Each of these wants something from us. They want our vote, our money, our support. They all have personal agendas. Prophets of God do not. Their agenda is the Lord's. And yet too often we listen to them last. 
Samuel the Lamanite delivered a stinging rebuke to the Nephites because they followed flawed leaders. He said, quote, O ye wicked and ye perverse generation, how long will ye suffer yourselves to be led by foolish and blind guides? Close quote. So my dear friends, to whom do you listen? Where does the living prophet rank in the list of those you turn to for advice? How many blind guides whose myopic vision of life is no better than yours are you following on podcasts and TikTok? Don't let blind, don't let blind guides obscure your vision of seers who see around corners. Third question. Do you know 15 smarter men who care about you more and who have purer motives? My answer. Have you ever asked yourself what's in all of this for apostles? Clearly, it's not money or popularity or comfort. Well beyond retirement age, they board planes and fly around the world for one reason. They have none other object save it be the everlasting welfare of our souls. And yet, all too often, they are mocked for teaching truth. Apostles are under divine mandate to teach truth, even when truth is unpopular. They are often pressured to change the Lord's doctrine to make it more palatable. But the doctrine doesn't belong to them, and it's not theirs to change. They're sometimes accused of being out of touch. But I know of no group who is more in touch with the realities and complexities of life. My dear friends, I promise you that no leaders on earth are more honest with you than prophets are, and no leaders care more about you and your future. Now, let's review five crucial truths about prophets. Truth number one, because this is the Lord's church and Jesus Christ is the one who chooses and directs his prophets, the Savior will never let the prophet lead the church astray, period. Truth number three, prophets hold priesthood keys that set them apart from any other leaders on earth. That is why living prophets are more important than any other prophets. Whatever the cost, do not separate yourself from those who hold all priesthood keys. Learn from my experience. Don't make life harder by being stupid. Don't be deceived by activists who believe their passion for a cause gives them permission to censure and criticize prophets. Don't turn your back on those who have all priesthood keys and who can help you see around corners. Truth number four, prophets won't be popular. So when the social media mob pounces on them, don't let that threaten your testimony. When prophets refuse to embrace the disintegration of morals championed by a rabidly secular society, that does not mean prophets are wrong. Sustaining prophets in today's world takes faith, our faith, but not faith in them, faith in Jesus Christ, who called them. Truth number five, your greatest spiritual safety will come by following the prophet. My dear friends, there may be times when you find yourself wrestling with teachings from prophets, but this is not rocket science. At this age in my life, I can promise you two things. First, 
You will question your testimony every day of your life if you do two things, break your covenants and turn your back on prophets. But the reverse is also true. You will enjoy a growing testimony all of your life if you keep your covenants and follow the prophet. That is a promise. Let prophets of God be your spiritual anchor. Listen to them, study their words, follow their counsel. It will protect you from deception and keep you from making major mistakes. Prophets will make you smarter. They will help you see things you cannot see. I know that following them makes us smarter because seers see things we cannot see. Prophets help us see around corners. You can know this too. I plead with you to gain your own witness of prophets of God and then to follow them for the rest of your life. It will be the smartest thing you ever do because prophets will be the last safe voices on earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Sherry delivered similar hero worship and sweeping generalizations and promises that don't actually come true for the majority of church members a year earlier at the 2021 BYU Women's Conference. She and her old housemate Wendy Watson Nelson have turned fervently proclaiming the awesomeness and infallibility of the prophet into an art form. Some people get tangled up in the question, but are prophets, seers, and revelators infallible? I think that's the wrong question. A better one is, who exactly are prophets? They are the ordained holders of priesthood keys that authorize the Lord's power to be distributed throughout the earth. They may not be perfect. They are, after all, still human. But they are the most perfect, inspired, unflawed leaders on earth. And their only motive is perfectly pure, to help us find our way back home by pointing us to Jesus Christ. The Lord has promised that if we receive the prophet's words as if he spoke them, the gates of hell will not prevail against us, and the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness and cause heaven to shake for our good. Accepting the gift of a prophet and following his counsel unleashes a score of promises to help us deal with the turmoil of the last days. And what a surprise. Sherry has a new book out. It's called Prophets See Around Corners. The chasm between people who get it and the faithful who just can't even begin to understand how to relate to or help their family members who are losing trust and leaving the church is so large it's embarrassing. They are kept so ignorant and inept it is unfathomable. I really respect Bruce and Marie Hafen for trying. Like the Fair Mormon founders and others who have stepped up to fulfil a need for ministry to the disillusioned, as they realise the senior general authorities are doing nothing whatsoever to help, so they might as well have a go themselves, 
They are at least trying as best they can from inside their comfortable, multi-generational, middle-class Mormon Idaho world. But tragically, their conditioning and inability to even imagine a Mormonism in which you can let go of expecting the leaders to be mostly reliable makes them unable to do it. They get so close to realising or taking that step then shrink back in fear from the edge of enlightenment and make up a bunch of timid excuses for not jumping over that wall into reality and mental freedom and actually being able to connect with the people they are yearning to rescue. Come with me as we read the rest of the page where they quote Dallin admitting the prophets are usually wrong about their doctrinal explanations, while always right about their commandments, and follow them as they go down the rabbit hole thousands of us have explored, and then scurry out of it in a hurry before finding the wonderland of epiphanies and the intellectual emancipation from cult thought control it could have led them to. Quote, This issue matters. Concluding that the priesthood restriction itself was wrong makes it more likely that we would hold back from giving the Lord and his prophets the benefit of the doubt about other important questions. Close quote. Boom. You've hit the nail on the head, Hafens. This is exactly the dilemma the general authorities faced when deciding to remove the apology for the racism that was in the original draft of the Race and the Priesthood Gospel Topics essay. This is what all the arguments and conflicts between TBM and nuanced and post-Mormons and apologists and critics boils down to. Do you think the 15 living or dead prophets, seers and revelators of the LDS Church are infallible or not when declaring revelations, doctrines and commandments and claiming they are from God. This is why Dallin Oaks has performed such unprecedented mental gymnastics to try and play both sides at once, by acknowledging the truth of their many mistakes, while still holding to the idea that the prophets are still 100% reliable, but only when issuing authoritarian commandments. As soon as you admit, as prolonged and important a mistake, by so many generations of LDS prophets, as was shown by the racist segregation, anyone with basic common sense and Christianity realises it is indefensible. It's game over for continuing to bother listening to their teachings about anything at all, without re-empowering ordinary church members with lots of leeway to ignore or disagree with them when they are obviously wrong about something. So what are you going to do about this, Hafens? We're rooting for you. By this penultimate chapter of your book, you are finally facing up to the real problem you are trying to fix. You've always known what it is, and now, after writing a book full of cognitive preloading, you are going to guide us in how to respond to this moment of realisation. I actually had the opportunity to meet Bruce Hafen and have a bit of a chat with him about his project. Quite early on, they came to Britain on a tour and he was speaking at stake centres with his daughter who kind of manages the, the programme. 
So we actually got to experience live their their whole presentation and as a kind of stake fireside. And I have his nice signed book. So a sweet little message at the front to Peter, faithful companion in the cause. Love and blessings, Bruce and Marie. So I assume Marie was there. 2nd of August, 2019. And I was really concerned straight away that not only were they totally missing the point, but what they were offering was not actually going to help the real people in faith crisis that I was spending a lot of time listening to and having conversations with. So I did give feedback. I sent a long email to his daughter, which may have been passed on to them, in which I basically identified what they're getting wrong and what they could perhaps do better if they were going to actually be useful to people in faith crisis. So it's interesting over time, we are even here in Britain starting to actually get opportunities to meet these people who are trying to stop the rot and save the church. And when I get to the British rescue stuff, quite a lot of dialogue, whether he realised it or not, with Keith Erickson, the historical outreach guy for the church's church history department. So what I'm going to do now is read a few pages from this penultimate chapter in the book, The Spirit of the Army. And what I'll be pointing out is this is an absolute showcase of some of the key mental gymnastics, gaslighting, completely missing the real point intentionally or otherwise, that is just typical of the apologists at the moment and what these general authorities are teaching to the young people in their devotionals and, and addresses at Brigham Young University and the global broadcasts and what the general authorities of a more senior nature like the apostles are saying as well. And what's quite interesting is they've latched onto a few simple ideas that they think are the big solution and they're not the solution at all. They basically involve diverting people from dealing with the solution to something that's actually very inadequate as a replacement, which I'll point out as we go. And a lot of it will sound familiar. And actually, it would seem that some of the people I'll be showing you clips of from their talks in this podcast mini-series have clearly got their stories and their ideas from this book. So we had recently... Elder Hamilton speaking, and he mentions Kumbalanium Delecci, who is a black South African newly convert missionary serving in my mission, where I live, in the England-London South mission with President Pinnegar, whose story I mentioned in a recent episode looking at the racism in the church. And no one had told him about the priesthood ban, and he found out about it and had a major faith crisis, but chose to just stay with the church anyway, regardless of that, and using him as a role model of being personally really severely harmed by a dysfunction in the church, but just choosing to basically ignore it. So he gets a mention along the way. So I think this book has clearly influenced quite a few of the church historians and others who are trying to be apologists, and certainly Carl McKay, um, who I'll be getting to later in this mini-series, uh, who is the new church historian, has clearly picked up on some of the ideas in this book and is repeating them or reworking them. Chapter 15, The Spirit of the Army. Spoiler alert, what they mean by Spirit of the Army, I won't read all the details of that bit, is an account from Russian history of where the Russian army was kind of, their backs were against the wall in Moscow, and somehow they collectively found the psychological will to just fight back and save their people. And Leo Tolstoy's idea that the turning points in history are not down to charismatic leaders, 
but to small things in the collective psyche of larger groups of people. And this is what ultimately the Havens are trying to point to. It's the logical fallacy, I can't remember what it's called, just where if lots of people believe it, it must be okay, (laughs) of safety in numbers, that whatever your personal issues and crises with what the church has done to you or what you're finding out about it, just remember there's millions of Mormons, millions of people who've got testimonies of the Book of Mormon and have reached this point of just faithful devotion. So you can trust that, even though there are a microscopically tiny percentage of the actual population of the world and the vast majority of people who have joined this church and thought they had a testimony of the Book of Mormon have left it, including the children brought up in the church. He's kind of ignoring the spirit of that army, of the, of the people who left. I mean, really. Anyway, while claiming to be trying to help them and understand their needs. Quote, God has always interacted with his children through the crucible of mortal complexities. In that crucible, it is always ours to decide whether we trust him. So he's straight away coming in with this idea that it's your choice to believe, something that several general authorities have been emphasizing, rather than rational analysis or evidence, that's ultimately the key to you sticking with this religion. And this is something President Nelson has taught quite intensively, just choose to believe. Quote, continuing, when President Wilfred Woodruff announced the manifesto in 1890, that'll be the one ending polygamy, he said, quote, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. Official declaration one. Yet President Russell M. Nelson has also asked us to, quote, give your leaders a little leeway to make mistakes, because, as President Dallin H. Oaks put it, quote, we don't believe in the infallibility of our leaders, close quote. So he's straight away acknowledging this massive contradiction that I've identified repeatedly as the core of the whole civil war in Mormonism. Are you going to believe that leaders are infallible? In which case that completely transforms your whole attitude to everything. Or do you understand that they're often human beings making up their own ideas and whether intentionally or otherwise proclaiming that to be the, the the will of God when it really isn't. And therefore you construct your religiosity and the safety nets and caveats and filters you apply to what to believe based on that reality. So Bruce Hafen understands the problem. He sees this massive contradiction in messaging between prophets basically in the LDS church. And he's just given clear examples there. Then he tries to fudge it. <laughs> Quote, Whatever else won't lead you astray means, it does not mean that the Lord's prophet will always tell us exactly what to do. Sometimes he asks us to seek our own direction, part of helping us learn how to develop our trust in God. Now that is a crafty diversion straight away, because these people, Nelson and Wilfred Woodruff, were adamant that it was their way or the highway. They were not saying, oh, but you decide whether to believe us or trust us. They're like, no, this is the absolute truth and I'm speaking for God. So to frame it as God 
having these contradictions in his church in order for us to make choices between them is complete nonsense. That's not what those prophets believed or ever said. So he's nuancing up a, a third way, as it were, just like the givens do. Oh, example, quote, for example, speaking in 1890 of whether the church should keep or abandon plural marriage when the US government was about to confiscate the church's temples, President Woodruff said, the Lord had, quote, told me to ask the Latter-day Saints a question, namely, which is the wisest course, to give up the temples or to give up plural marriage? And if they would listen and find their own answers, quote, by the spirit and power of God, they would all answer alike. Then, with no edicts, he concluded, I leave this with you to contemplate and consider. Close quote from Official Declaration 1. Now, what he's <laughs> left out, if you go and read Official Declaration 1, is that in that address, Wilford Woodruff made extremely clear that if they didn't go with dropping polygamy, they would lose everything. The church would be devastated and all the, the temples would be taken by the government. So in no way was this being presented to the membership as something for them to just consider themselves and the spirit would guide them to the correct answer. He'd already like extremely cognitively preloaded them to know we're dropping polygamy or we will be destroyed and the church will end. So it's very disingenuous for the Hafens to imply that we're living all the time in this grey area where you can kind of go either way and there's a buffer zone of tolerance within the church's worldview and framework for you to just think for yourself and make your own choices about these things. That is not what was going on then. Anyway, to continue, page 118 of Faith is Not Blind. Quote, In the moment of inspired insight... President Woodruff was calling upon the sacred power of each church member's personal relationship with God to find for himself or herself the answer the prophet already knew. That insight can help teach us how we can, in good conscience, give the Lord and his church the benefit of the doubt as we work through our complexities. Close quote. That's not actually a rational segue there. Understanding that you can think and pray for yourself does not mean you therefore give the Lord and the church the benefit of the doubt, which means you suppress your personal qualms and assume that these people are always right. This is either just bad thinking and bad writing, or it's really intentional manipulation to imply that that's a rational outcome from being able to think for yourself that you should therefore always give the church the benefit of the doubt. That's absolutely wrong. You should therefore be more sceptical and never give the church the benefit of the doubt or not easily. They need to earn it. You need to be able to judge each situation by its own merits, not have a blanket conclusion that the church and its leaders are always trustworthy. And then he references Kumbalani. Quote, prompted by Kumbalani Umdelechi's story, let us apply the idea to the topic of race and the priesthood. It is no small matter to conclude, as some church members do today, that all of the first presidencies from Brigham Young through Harold B. Lee were simply wrong in maintaining the priesthood and temple restriction for over a century. Not just that some of their theories to explain the ban were mistaken, as the church has acknowledged, 
but that the ban itself was wrong. So again, we're going with this Oaksian distinction between the commandment and the reasons given for it, as if they can be separated. There is a difference between the restriction and possible reasons for it. As President Oakes said, quote, I decided a long time ago that I had faith in the command and I had no faith in the reasons that have been suggested for it. Close quote. Suggested. What a disingenuous word. Told this is the will of God and this is the doctrine. It wasn't ever a suggestion. <laughs> suggested for it. Anyway, further, he added, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants, close quote. This issue matters. Concluding that the priesthood restriction itself was wrong makes it more likely that we would hold back from giving the Lord and his prophets the benefit of the doubt about other important questions. So in other words, as I've already said, acknowledging that they could have been wrong about something so serious raises serious question marks about their trustworthiness about other matters. That's a completely accurate point. But of course, he in his mind can't ever allow himself to be seen in print differentiating between the will of the Lord and the church. He's conflated them completely, that we would hold back from giving the Lord and his prophets the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't work with his, the leaders are basically infallible religion to say, well, the Lord might have had nothing to do with this. And we can trust the Lord, but we can't trust these people. Quote, recent survey data found that nearly two thirds of self-identified Latter-day Saints say they either know or believe that this restriction was God's will for the church until 1978. Still, we hear two contradictory narratives these days among active church members. So he's trying to say here, actually, if you think it wasn't God's will, you're in the minority. Two thirds of Mormons think it was God's commandment that black men and women and children should not be allowed in a temple, should not be sealed, should not have the priesthood, should not have the missionaries proactively try to convert them and offer them even baptism. First, some say that our 19th century church leaders' views about black Africans simply reflected the racist attitudes of that era's larger American culture. But, they say, historical context should not be relevant to eternal truth. And with the hindsight of today's more egalitarian time, it is clear that the priesthood and temple restriction was simply wrong. Our leaders should have been more in tune with God and more courageous. In addition, a few black men did receive the priesthood during Joseph Smith's time. Second, others say that the restriction itself was not a mistake. We shouldn't interpret 19th century racial history through the lens of 21st century assumptions about what our church leaders could and should have understood and done that long ago in the name of fairness and equality as if fairness and equality only got invented this century. They, and there, were no, there were no emancipationists in the 1800s. I mean, these people are nuts. Anyway, sorry, he's, he's not saying this is his view. He's saying this is the other kind of camp among Mormons. So he's describing them quite well. They say the Lord had his own reasons for the ban. Anciently, access to the gospel was limited for centuries until the revelation to Peter about Cornelius. 
and the 1978 revelation was all part of his plan in the long historical sequence of taking the gospel message to every people. Only he could judge when those people, the church, and society were ready for this culminating step, close quote. So this, of course, ignores the fact that the story of Cornelius and Peter is that the gospel went to all the Gentiles. They didn't leave out the black people. There is zero evidence whatsoever of any kind that when the New Testament gospel went to all the Gentiles, they left out black people. In fact, one of the first stories in the book of Acts is about a missionary being shoved by the Spirit to go and baptise and convert a transgender black African. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you couldn't make it up. The Ethiopian eunuch who worked in the courts of the Queen of Ethiopia, and the Ethiopian Christian Church traces its origins to that moment. But no, this viewpoint is all about, well, you know, they used to not ordain non-Jewish people or people who weren't in the right Jewish tribe. Therefore, it's okay to completely ignore the New Testament and the gospel going to the Gentiles and still be racistly segregating in the 1800s. Anyway, Bruce here is describing these two opposing mindsets within Mormonism. and He's been really good. He's been thorough. He's ticked all the boxes of how each one frames things. Continuing, in searching for some reconciliation between these viewpoints, we, as in he and his wife, once made the effort to review the plausible historical evidence supporting each view. The evidence does matter, because even though rational argument and evidence do not by themselves create belief, such evidence does maintain a climate in which belief may flourish. And this has been quite an important quote for intellectual Mormons. This is Austin Farrer quoted in Neil A. Maxwell's BYU Studies talk in summer 1992 titled Discipleship and Scholarship. This idea that you can't just ignore offering evidence and rational arguments to defend your religious position. People need more than just being told what to believe in order to have a, a strong and stable and credible religion. So you do need to um, work hard to get as much evidence as you can for the Book of Mormon being credible, for your religious truth claims being credible, if you are expecting to hold your own in the marketplace of ideas. So again, that quote, um, evidence does, quote, maintain a climate in which belief may flourish, close quote. Historical evidence alone is not always capable of totally proving or disproving scriptural and prophetic claims, but it does help those who want to give the benefit of the doubt to the Lord's prophets to know that there is at least a rational basis that supports their choice. Call it informed faith. Close quote. I think that's a perfectly reasonable point, but the problem he's got here is the vast weight of the evidence points to these men being horrible, nasty racists. If you actually read what Brigham Young and others taught, justifying these doctrines and explaining themselves, justifying slavery, declaring that anyone marrying interracially and their babies should be beheaded, as Brigham Young did in 1852 in the Utah legislature, you're not dealing with <laughs> ambiguity. 
you know, when you actually do the research and realise the full scale of horror and injustice and immorality involved, and the fact that America was teeming with people absolutely committed to equality and justice and ending slavery and discrimination right from the beginning, then this idea just totally loses credibility that it's kind of on a knife edge. The evidence could go either way and you're going to have to decide that dilemma by making a choice of faith, which is what he's going to get to here. What he's not dealing with is that the evidence about the origins and lived experience of polygamy, of the racist segregation and so on, are so spectacularly awful. There can be no doubt, after you look at the evidence, that they are nothing whatsoever to do with God, certainly in how polygamy was actually practiced and applied. These apologists are always trying to tell their audiences who haven't done the research yet that it's not that bad. They carefully leave out those extremities, the full weight of the evidence, to imply that these things could still go either way and you just need a little bit of faith and everything will be fine. Informed faith. Carrying on. But then we paused. So, so brother and sister Hafen decided to stop researching the historical evidence about the racism. Let's find out why. But then we paused, sensing that where we place the benefit of the doubt in resolving such complexities finally turns on larger questions than just how plausible the evidence is. Especially with sensitive and complex subjects, it's easy to get bogged down in details and differences of opinion about, quote, evidence, close quote, that divert attention from what? From what? From analysing the evidence and understanding where it is clearly pointing to? No, the worry is that if you keep researching the evidence, this, diverting attention from the ultimate and very personal process of deciding how, where, and to whom we should give the benefit of the doubt in close cases. So what freaked them out, it would seem, reading between those lines, is they were starting to understand they were getting to a position far away from it being a close case. The evidence clearly points to these prophets teaching horrific nonsense as the will of God for generations, that there is something fundamentally broken in approaching Mormonism as God actually speaking through these mouthpieces consistently and reliably. That's what freaked them out. If they learnt too much, they would lose that ability to treat it all as kind of fairly evenly balanced one way or the other, the evidence, the, the moral compass, I would say. Quote, as one friend said, not all uncertainties need to be resolved intellectually. Blind faith is simple, easy, and ultimately dangerous. But the benefit of the doubt is something earned by thought and experience that is then lovingly, charitably given to others, not because you have to, or because of plausible evidence, but because you love and trust the brethren, just as God extends the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in him, Mosiah 29.20, giving each one of us the benefit of what surely must be some well-founded doubt about our ultimate worthiness, close quote. Wow. 
So once again, I'm really seeing that a lot of these talks that I've been working through in my podcast, um, they've been reading this book and, and running with it. Because what you have there is an amazing little gaslighting trail. You go from not all uncertainties need to be resolved intellectually. So you're getting away from intellectual rational evidence and analysis because that is clearly pointing to these prophets being very messed up. And then it suddenly talks about blind faith being a bad thing because it's simple, easy and ultimately dangerous. But in reality, they're advocating for blind faith where you choose to be blind to the evidence, to reality. But they call it different things. They've called it the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt is blind faith. That is intentionally choosing to ignore evidence and assume something that looks bad must to be okay still because you've decided emotionally, spiritually, that these people are trustworthy. And then, of course, they make it all about you. And this, it absolutely might drop, is exactly what Henry Eyring Jr. taught in his extraordinary speech to BYU-Idaho, which will feature in this mini-series, in which he basically said, you can't criticise the church because you're a sinner. So you have no right to point to anyone else being wrong about anything because you should just resolve your concerns by remembering to have guilt trips about your own sins however trivial and go and feel forgiven for them therefore the church is true and you don't even need to think about that evidence stuff he took a long speech to say this same thing but the hafens are doing it in a paragraph that they've turned it from analyzing evidence about 126 years of racist segregation in the church and it's now all about you and your sins. Blame the victim. Feel guilty about yourself. Stop thinking. And that is the shame cycle. That's how cults work. That is how this church conflates emotion with truth and reality and rational thought and critical analysis and suppresses it by focusing on your own shame about your own sins. And therefore, you shouldn't criticize these leaders because otherwise you won't get forgiven for your sins because people could criticize you for slapping your brother which is a bit different to claiming to be the prophet of god and lying to everyone and withholding your religion and its alleged blessings from entire races of millions and billions of people for over a century they're not really equivalent are they bruce Continuing, also regarding how to resolve unsettled questions after we've gathered all of the available evidence. This is not an unsettled question if you research the history of the racism. It's pretty clear what happens and the gospel topics are clear about that. Regarding how to resolve unsettled questions after we've gathered all of the available evidence. So remember, they've already admitted they stopped gathering all of the available evidence. They paused in their evidence-gathering process. Bruce and Marie are now offering a, a sort of conclusion of their journey, saying that after you've gathered all the available evidence, remember this, they've already opted out of acknowledging or investigating for themselves all the available evidence because it was making them too uncomfortable. Recall Moroni's promise about how to learn whether the Book of Mormon is true. 
what? Before applying the familiar test in Moroni 10 4 to 5, or before deciding where to place the benefit of the doubt, Moroni's prior first step is I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, that you would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from Adam until now, and ponder it in your hearts. So, cognitive preloading. Remember all those stories about God being nice to people? Now, again, this is the manipulative tactic of anyone being manipulative, but in this case, these LDS apologists. Moroni 10 is not about choosing where to place the benefit of the doubt. It finishes with a promise. God will tell you the truth of this or not. It's not, you will look at all the evidence and then you'll decide for yourself whether to give the benefit of the doubt to the truth claims of the LDS Church or the Book of Mormon. It says, God will reveal the truth to you. You will know that it's true. So they're lying about what Moroni's promise is actually offering and, and its context. Why begin our quest with such remembering and pondering? Because gratitude turns our hearts to God, and because he has an infinitely long track record of lovingly pointing us in the right direction. Does he really, you know, slaughtering everyone in a flood, telling his people to engage in genocidal slaughter of entire nations of people in the Old Testament? He's not happy, fluffy, hippie Jesus, is he really? Was that a long, an infinitely long track record of lovingly pointing us in the right direction? Anyway, then our basic attitude looks beyond the current culture and the historical evidence to the higher, quote, vantage point of a loving God who has always worked patiently through flawed people to accomplish a perfect mission, close quote. So let's look up the reference there for that quote. Uh, 102. Email from Kevin Knight to Bruce Hafen, February the 14th, 2018. So that wasn't a prophet speaking, it's someone sending him an email. So he's already now shifting from evidence and rational analysis of the evidence to our feelings. You will override all those problems by having feelings, the standard general authority approach to gaslighting and avoiding actually dealing with issues. Then our basic attitude looks beyond the current culture. So the idea that caring about racism in the past or the treatment of women in polygamy is just a contemporary 21st century, possibly temporary cultural habit that's not actually in touch with real truth or real compassion or real religion. Current culture and the historical evidence, so you can just ignore historical evidence because your attitude is a higher law to that. You then have the vantage point of the loving God who has always worked patiently through flawed people to accomplish a perfect mission. So the outcome has always been perfect, even though the people are a bit flawed. Somehow, you know, it's all been fine when the Israelites slaughtered entire nations of men, women and children, or executed adulterers and homosexuals and witches or any of the other dysfunctions that are clearly man-made in the history and the scriptures of our religion. It's all been a perfect mission. And you need to just look at the eternal perspective. That's the other Mormon cliche here. Ignore the suffering of the individuals because there's a bigger picture. That attitude toward trusting God need not be complicated. 
One friend experienced it this way. As a child, he was perplexed in wondering what eternal life could possibly mean. The prospect of living forever seemed impossibly boring to me. I could barely sit through three hours of church. So I took my concern to God with all the sincerity of a young boy and got a powerful answer. Trust me, it'll be good. Ever since, he has wanted eternal life, not because he fully understands it, but because God spoke to me and I trust him. So again, this is one of the absolute cliche classics of apologetic gaslighting, referring to an experience you have as a very young child, so not dealing with anything like adult complexity and real doctrines. We'll be hearing from Elder Haney, who begins his talk with talking about how he got a testimony as a tiny boy after watching David O. McKay on the telly without really realising who he was. We'll be hearing Henry B. Eyring Jr. talking about his conditioning and testimony building by his mother when he was a little boy and how that stayed with him all his life. So that's a kind of a trope that's emerging. But mainly it's this idea of it will all be fine. Don't worry about the here and now. Just trust that whatever's in the next life is going to be wonderful, even though it's starting to sound horrific. And that's how they're gaslighting women about polygamy. And how Dallin Oaks did that in General Conference, saying you don't need to worry about what the housing and living arrangements are if your husband is sealed to more than one wife, just assume it's all going to be fine and don't worry about it then. The presence of a plausible explanation for whatever complex issues we're wrestling with can be reassuring and inform our faith, yet our choices to believe can't, and therefore shouldn't, always count on complete rational support. So after a page earlier talking about how rational evidence is actually very important to sustaining a rational faith, uh, he's now saying it shouldn't ever have that much influence. It's really just about choosing to believe. Choose, oh, he's saying it. Choose, (laughs) (laughs) he really is. Choosing to calm the chaos of our uncertainties by extending to the Lord and his church the benefit of the doubt, here we go again, preserves our capacity to make the sacrifices, large and small, that our consecration requires, from accepting mission calls and, drumroll, you'll never expect this, paying tithing, to accepting other church callings, fasting and wearing the temple garment with respect. I just love this because what he's saying is the essential outcome, the priority of our religion, is not to be like Christ, is not to embody integrity and compassion and love and divine qualities. It is to perform. This is literally the Pharisee religion. The end goal is the doing, not the being. As long as you accept mission calls, pay your tithing, accept all your callings, do fasting regularly and wear your temple garment like you're meant to, that proves you're fine. It's not even evidence of something greater. It is the greater. That is the purpose of the religion. So when you stop performing these things and doing these outward performances and rituals and giving the church everything you've got unconditionally, then you're falling short of the real religion. Whereas people who have ascended to a more sophisticated and I would argue much more Christian worldview 
because they've read what Jesus actually said, <laughs> know that that means diddly squat. You know, it's not about the money. It's not about the doing, the fasting, the showing off, through, the virtue signaling through clothing. He literally taught against this in Matthew 23 and everywhere else. But here you've got the whole list, focusing on giving the church money and wearing the correct clothing the correct way and being seen to be fasting. This is literally what Jesus condemned as false religion or false priorities over justice and mercy. The Hafens are revealing their true colours. They are TBM Pharisee Mormons and they can't imagine the religion working any other way. We take some guidance here from what President Spencer W. Kimball said about Peter denying Christ three times. Perhaps the standard interpretation is correct. Peter denied knowing Christ because he was human, weak and afraid. On the other hand, said President Kimball, it is possible that the Saviour's statement was not a prediction but a request for Peter to deny knowing him in order to ensure Peter's future leadership of the church. Which interpretation is correct? Like Wilford Woodruff, Spencer Kimball left that for us to decide. What a load of utter nonsense. When did Spencer Kimball ever leave anything to us to decide? <laughs> the author of Oral Sexgate and The Miracle of Forgiveness. I mean, really. I have never heard this interpretation before. No one in the Christian world or any Mormon I've ever met interprets that story as Jesus telling Peter to lie in order to not get executed so he could go on to lead the church. My giddy aunt, what's the reference? 104. Spencer W. Kimball, Peter, my brother, BYU Devotional 1971. Ah, I might have been there. My gosh. I was a five-month-old baby at BYU, so I probably actually heard that talk. <laughs> but I don't remember it. Sorry, Spencer. So it is... <laughs> you couldn't make this up. So it is with the priesthood restriction, or with any official church position. Perhaps the brethren make a mistake, but perhaps not. So they've given this completely ludicrously imbalanced example in which to sell the idea that these things are always balanced, either way could always be right. Like, no one in their right mind or no biblical scholar I've ever heard of thinks that Jesus was telling Peter to deny him. Perhaps the brethren made a mistake, but perhaps not. Was it a mistake for Peter to withhold the gospel from the Gentile world until the revelation described in Acts 10? Did the Lord give Peter the reasons for that revelation? Would the Lord give his prophet instructions without also giving reasons for the instruction? He might, particularly because we may not yet be able to understand his reasons. Think of the Lord asking Mormon to include the small plates of Nephi, asking Adam and Eve to offer sacrifices, and the Annunciation to Mary. In each case, he didn't initially give them reasons for what he asked them to do. Now that is an absolutely mahusive lie. This is the thing Dallin Oaks has been promoting. The idea that God has mostly, Dallin Oaks said it was mostly, not given reasons for his commandments. The restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry, almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, 
was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Now that day had come, and I wept for joy. Many Latter-day Saints felt joy at this news. The numbers of valiant and faithful members of African descent who had accepted the gospel despite the restrictions was then very small. Therefore, most of those who rejoiced were Anglo-Americans like me who witnessed the pain of black brothers and sisters and longed for their relief. It's actual lies and shows what a rubbish scriptorian he is if he actually believes that's true, which I highly doubt. It was completely obvious why the gospel went to the Gentiles, because the message of Christ was meant to be for everyone and he taught that himself, and the Old Testament had taught that their message was meant to bless the whole world. Mary, as described in the New Testament, is completely aware of her religion, her heritage, the expectation of the Messiah, and what it would mean to conceive the child of God. Continuing, We can't prove enough about such questions to answer them with certainty. So the Lord wants us to choose where to repose our trust through a demanding, searching, personal process that connects us to the evidence. Uh, no, sorry, that connects us to him. He wants us to consider what all of our experience teaches us about whether we can trust him. So again, it's about, haven't you felt God blessing your life? Therefore, you must trust him and the entire structure and leadership of the LDS Church exactly as it is. Earlier chapters explored why the Lord so often puts us in such places where we're not forced by the circumstances to believe, even as he then invites us to be believing. The Lord sees an infinitely bigger picture than we do. If we want the blessing of that infinite perspective, we give him and his prophets the benefit of the doubt, which is ultimately a trust issue. And only if we extend our trust is he able to help us learn what he wants us to learn. We do value what we discover far more than we value what we are told. So he's teaching here that the absolute key to becoming like God is blind faith, just trust. Paying too much attention to, quote, evidence, close quote, why put the word evidence in quotes? It's not an invented theory that people argue about. Evidence is evidence. But they're shifting it into this area of uncertainty. You know, if you put quotes around the word evidence. It's, it's implying evidence isn't actually evidence. It's an opinion. It's a biased interpretation. Paying too much attention to evidence 
can cause us to base our trust entirely on reason, or on an expectation of certain blessings. That isn't trust so much as it is bargaining. Now this is really interesting. We're constantly told that there are certain blessings. The whole gospel is about if you do these things, if you have this belief, you will be given eternal life. You will have an eternal family. You will be blessed. That every blessing is predicated on obedience to a law. So to pretend here that somehow it is bargaining and unreasonable to expect particular outcomes from following this religion is just nonsense because that's what it teaches and always has. That isn't trust so much as it is bargaining. Unless we give him our quote non-contingent trust close quote which he then defines in brackets as trust that doesn't depend on a particular outcome, he can't lead us where he knows we need to go a destination often unknown to us. So again, while claiming he's not teaching blind faith, he's literally teaching blind faith, just like L. Whitney Clayton did. Non-contingent trust, i.e. trusting without any evidence to support that trust, is the literal definition of blind faith. On the other hand, what does non-contingent trust look like? It looks like blind faith, Havens, but let's see what you think it looks like. We have mentioned the return missionary who said he had left the church because the church just didn't meet my expectations. His expectations, his personal view of what was best for himself, defined what he would allow the Lord to ask of him or do for him. His trust was contingent. Well, that's nonsense. The reason people find the church didn't meet their expectations is because it doesn't live up to what it told them to expect. It's not their own personal whims and thinking, oh, I want these magical things to happen. It's the church told you you would get these blessings. If you follow this path, you will have a happy life. You will have a nuclear married family. You will, your children will grow up in righteousness you will feel good about yourself rather than shamed. So again, the Hafens literally have no idea about their audience. They, don't, they, they, they can't get their heads around the actual experience of betrayal and having the church's promises not turn out well for the vast majority of people who've joined it, including those who grew up in it. His trust was contingent. So what does non-contingent trust look like? Consider some examples. And they trot through lots of contradictory situations where some people get rescued and some people get burnt to death with the message that ultimately the only way to approach the spiritual life is just trust God unconditionally because you may or may not get the blessings you're expecting. Which I think is fine if you are just making it about God, but when you totally associate that with trusting specific leaders and churches who are going to do things that actually harm you, that you don't have to put up with, that becomes problematic. When our faith is based on trust and not on certain expected blessings, we can endure any trial, unconditional faith. We don't know if, when or how he will deliver us in the short term, but when we meekly yield to him our non-contingent trust, 
i.e. our unconditional blind faith, he will always deliver us in the long term. So this is the house always wins, um, which is the basis of all cult control systems. If you get the blessings, that proves God loves you. If you don't get the blessing, that also proves that God is real and, and this religion is true because you're being tested. Your faith is being stretched and you will definitely still get the blessings, but it will be after you die and no one's come back from death to tell you that it's actually real and it really happens. So the house always wins. Whatever happens to you, however much the institution or the belief system fails you, it's never allowed in that thinking to prove that actually there's something wrong here or maybe the truth claims are false. And this is the blind faith that Bruce is now segueing to as the way forward. Job personifies non-contingent trust. Satan taunts God by saying Job's trust is contingent. Satan misread Job, but the Lord knew his heart, his non-contingent trust. Blind faith. Another trope of the apologists is to point to educated intellectuals and say, well, they have belief, therefore you can. They know everything you know, and, and they're faithful. And a great example of this he references is Richard Bushman, who is the historian who wrote Rough Stone Rolling, that has broken a 100,000 Mormon testimonies, the biography of Joseph Smith, um, but is still a believer. Um, a very mentally gymnastic, nuanced believer, if you actually listen to him speaking. But let's keep it simple. Here we go. In our own day, here is where Richard Bushman's non-contingent trust has taken him and where ours can take us. So, you know, let's follow his example of blind faith. Quote, I know the arguments against the Book of Mormon's historicity, but I can't help feeling that the words are true and the events happened. I believe it in the face of many questions. Unanswerable as some questions are, we need not lament the questions they bring. The strain of believing in unbelieving times is not a handicap or a burden. It is a stimulus and a prod and we are in this together, close quote. So straight away it's going in with feelings. It feels true. It feels convincing when I read this book and that the events really happens. Unanswerable as some questions are. So again, that is gaslighting. A lot of these questions are definitely answerable. <laughs> we can know stuff. You can look at the evidence and conclude if... <laughs> that the DNA does not support a Middle Eastern ancestry for any of the Native American peoples. They definitely didn't have steel. They did not ride horses to battle or transport. They did not have elephants and all the other anachronisms. If huge chunks of the Book of Mormon are literally plagiarized from the King James Version of the Bible, that's an immovable object. It's not an unanswerable question. And this, the strain of believing in unbelieving times. So again, blaming the world, saying the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's the world's fault. It stopped believing fairy tales and religious stories that have no credibility, that don't have enough evidence or rational basis to make them credible when you're informed and educated and applying rational criteria. And again, the idea that you're not alone. We are in this together. Since we are, in fact, in this together, what happens when we let the particular 
become the general, and we imagine an entire host of people whose faith is non-contingent, you know, an army of blind believers, based on trust and not on bargained-for blessings. So just trust the leaders, don't expect to actually get any blessings or benefits from following them. <laughs> just just suffer and carry on doing it and keep trusting them. What image would tell us what Wilfred Woodruff might have meant when, instead of giving the saints the answer about the rightness or wrongness of the manifesto, he gently asks them to find their own answer by the spirit and power of God. And if they would, he said, they would all answer alike and believe alike. How could he know they would? Because that is the spirit of the army. Um, no, it's not Hafen's. That is, the prophet got up and told them exactly what to think, and he framed it very clearly. He said, we are giving up polygamy or we will be destroyed. That's not like a 50-50 thing to make a choice about. It was never going to go with we're keeping polygamy, although actually quite a lot of people did. So again, the false narrative. How would he know that they would all answer alike and believe alike? But they didn't. A huge faction of the Latter-day Saints carried on practicing polygamy. Wilford Woodruff himself carried on practicing polygamy. The general authorities continued secretly practicing polygamy and authorizing it in the United States, and they quickly sent colonies to be established in Mexico and Canada, where they could still get away with it for a bit longer, to continue the practice. And eventually, with several more manifestos, the church had to admit it had been doing this and officially actually stop it. At that point, a huge community of fundamentalist polygamist Latter-day Saints broke away, and they're still going strong in terrifyingly dysfunctional polygamous communities. All the basic stuff that the Hafens, I presume, actually do know, and certainly should know, if they'd done any kind of research into the things disturbing these people in faith crisis they think they're trying to help. But it's much easier to tell a rose-tinted, over-generalised, much simpler fairy tale, isn't it? Another apologist trope is the idea that non-members of your religion will come and spend time with your people and be so incredibly impressed they will see that you're unique. They will confirm your beliefs about your own specialness or maybe even convert to your faith. So we get an example of this in this chapter. Some years ago, a thoughtful non-LDS professor of family law from Japan visited the BYU campus for a week living in a guest room in a student dorm. Each day he ate with, talked with and watched BYU students and faculty. When he was leaving for home, he said to me, quote, I have never seen such a place. This campus is an island of hope in the land of the apocalypse. <laughs> I must know the mystery behind all the shining eyes, close quote. It sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? Like if you go, to, it's it's the midwitch cuckoos or the Stepford Wives. <laughs> What's the mystery behind these robots' shining eyes? I replied that the mystery behind the students' shining eyes is the spirit of the army of the saints, a spirit of simplicity, goodness, and truth that animates the BYU community 
and every ward and branch of the church. Again, what complete, utter, unrealistic nonsense. That's just propaganda. BYU and every ward in the church has always been ridden with really fundamental dysfunctions. There are rapists on the BYU campus. There is authoritarian cult control on a scale that's eye-wateringly bad. There has been institutionalised racism and homophobia and transphobia off the scale. There is no religious freedom in these communities. If you stop performing religiously, you get kicked out and you lose your funding. If you lose your testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quote, those who criticise the Latter-day Saints for blindly following their leaders don't really understand the origin and meaning of this spirit. They seem unable to grasp that those shining eyes are not, quote, the outcome of cunning calculations, close quote, but are the fruits of intensely personal convictions developed through thousands of private stories and struggles. Again, totally ignoring all the coercive manipulation that goes towards keeping people shiny-eyed and bushy-tailed about Mormonism, despite all the problems. President Wilford Woodruff and President Russell M. Nelson know all about those private struggles and stories. They've seen them in their own lives and in ours. So again, another trope. These insensitive, callous leaders who harm so many people with their words are actually really kind. They understand your problems, ordinary humans. They're one of us, which they're clearly not, even if they used to be. They've seen them in their own lives and in ours. President Gordon B. Hinckley was perhaps thinking of such stories when someone asked him, If you do not use the cross, what is the symbol of your religion? He replied, The lives of our people. Our church members' lives are the most meaningful expression of our faith, and in fact, therefore, the symbol of our worship. It is that simple, my brethren and sisters, and that profound, and we better never forget it. So again, the Pharisee religion. It's how you live. It's your performative, putting on a great appearance of being unified, of having simple, clear faith, untroubled by the problems of the modern age keeping up that illusion that is the definition of their religion, the symbol of their worship, not the struggle for truth, however difficult it is. So, for us, what is the spirit of the army? Along with the great scriptural and prophetic witnesses of Christ, President Hinckley added, the witness of millions who, by the power of the Holy Ghost, bear solemn testimony of his living reality. That testimony has been their comfort and their strength. We pray often for the prophet and his brethren. Consider what it means that they also pray often for us. You know, this is how um, here in Britain, this is the whole mystique of royalty, that these people are on thrones living incredibly privileged lives, but you're meant to adore them because they still care about you. They'll come and visit your school. They'll look at you kindly and nod when you speak to them. And isn't that amazing? Because you set up a distance and then you go through these performative acts to break through that barrier and imply they're still human and kind, but always infallible. Not they're going to punch you in the face or have a go at you for getting in their way. They're always going to be nice and kind when they interact with you from their, their golden thrones. We pray often for the prophet and his brethren. Consider what it means that they also pray often for us. We're all part of the same army. 
each with an individually sought and heavenly bestowed testimony within our souls. Well, not anymore. They were lying to us. They hoarded privilege and wealth beyond comprehension. These teeming millions of Mormons have never been more than a microscopic percentage of the world's population, and they are leaving by the millions. So having the punchline of this book be saying to the people who are actually leaving, the reason you should stay is all the people who are sure and certain in their blind faith, is, is crazy. Because these were those people, and they haven't got that blind faith anymore, and they can see that hardly anyone else in their congregation does anymore, and that it's untenable to do so. So again, offering the problem as the solution to the problem is a clear indicator that you have no idea what the problem really is, and who's responsible for it. Today, when our backs are against the wall of a degraded, secular society, whose acid eats at the roots of our children's faith, or our own. Again, <laughs> the horrible, wicked world, they're going after your children. Degraded, secular society, and acid. Well, they're not. It's people who got educated and informed and engaged in rational thought and realised what you're offering is dangerous nonsense. Do we just look to our prophet leader to fix it? Or do we also look into our own souls? When we speak of giving the Lord and his church the benefit of the doubt, what or who is his church? We are giving our trust not only to the Lord and his prophet. We give it also to the gospel and its power, the combined personal assurances from all the Latter-day Saints that the Lord keeps his promises. I can introduce him to a lot of Latter-day Saints <laughs> who, for whom the Lord definitely did not keep the promises they were given. In all their paradoxes and uncertainties, they reflect those assurances in the shining eyes of a million personal discoveries. So again, it's this fluff, isn't it? Oh, I heard these lovely things in testimony meeting. It's all true. You know, God's working in these people's lives. They've found something to give them hope and hold on to. Therefore, it's all true and you could unconditionally trust these leaders, despite the evidence that they lie to you and steal from you. And as one young mother said, the biggest reason to give the church the benefit of the doubt. Okay, here we go, everyone. This is coming to the end of this chapter, the end of this book. All of those reasons that we've heard for trust and believing these people are on the list that the church's apologists and defenders bring out. But apparently there's an even bigger punchline. Can you guess what it is? If you've been paying attention, you probably can to what the leaders have been saying for a long time now as ultimately the big excuse. It actually doesn't matter if I'm lying to you. It doesn't matter if the church is corrupt. It doesn't matter if we've been wrong about so many things. There's still this one thing that we have that means you have to stay with this institution. As one young mother said, the biggest reason to give the church the benefit of the doubt is that it has the Lord's priesthood power, comes to authority and priesthood. So as we extend trust, that power stays with us. Quote, hold on thy way and the priesthood shall remain with thee, DNC 122 verse 9. Many in today's community of saints feel great empathy and love for their family and friends who have 
unsettled religious feelings. <laughs> unsettled religious feelings. I love these euphemisms. Unsettled religious feelings is catastrophic trust crisis because they found out they were being lied to and robbed and that the people they were told were completely trustworthy are absolutely not and have been making up total nonsense and claiming God told them to tell it to us for a long time. So anyway, again, this is a this is a gaslighting strategy. You minimize the scale of the problem. You trivialize it so that when people think of the people who are in faith crisis and trust crisis, it's not they're having a complete breakdown of their whole reality and deserve, even if you don't agree with them, some kind of significant empathy and care to help them through that situation. But they've got unsettled religious feelings. They're having a bit of a kerfuffle. And that's what this whole Faith is Not Blind project is about. It's about getting back to simplicity after a little kerfuffle of complexity. Not total psychological worldview faith collapse. Complexity. And you can just soothe it over by just choosing to carry on believing anyway and you'll get back to the simplicity. And everything will be fine. It's not really that difficult. The stalwarts in this community are not just active in the church, they are consecrated disciples of Christ. They are fighting through their own uncertainties to resolve their questions in favour of the Lord and his church. Many of them live in the simplicity beyond complexity. And they reach out to lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. So again, what matters is that you're kind and you help people in distress. Though actually, a lot of the ways that Mormons help people is not helpful at all. Or they have to go through a long process of first trying to get their families to help them before the church will. It will strengthen us if we can trust the hard-won personal testimonies from the thousands upon thousands who have read, thought about, and prayed over the Book of Mormon year after year who have served missions of faith and sacrifice all over the world, who have intimately felt the Lord's influence, his closeness to them, who have seen the promises of Christ's redemption bear sweet fruit in their lives and the lives of those closest to them, who have often told the Joseph Smith story to their children, their friends and to strangers and felt the spirit of its simple, pure truth. We are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12.1. Again, the utter parade of nonsense in that paragraph. Let's pick that apart. So if we trust the people who've had all those experiences and still believe, that's the key. But statistically, numerically, objectively, far more millions of people who were in that position, have since woken up, discovered the truth, and become totally disillusioned with this church than those that you can find and line up meeting that description that Bruce and Marie give there. Pretty much all of us who spent decades in this church and have since become more sceptical have been in the place of feeling close to Christ, having that faith, making the sacrifices, feeling that influence. But then we found a bigger truth that couldn't be ignored. As for telling the Joseph Smith story to your children and feeling the spirit, I mean, again, 
pointing at the deepest wounds of the disillusioned as the solution and the healing for those wounds is crazy. Quite simply, one of the biggest realisations that we've had collectively about what we were told about the history of our religion is that the Joseph Smith story is riddled with lies, and particularly the different versions of the first vision, and that we were sent out to tell a highly edited, rose-tinted, written long after the event and after earlier, more accurate versions of the Joseph Smith story, and witness to people that this is the truth and felt the spirit confirm that and then found out it was actually not as described so that totally discredits the spiritual witness thing he's not addressing that he's pointing to the thing that is one of the key sources of our sense of betrayal and our loss of trust in spiritual witnesses as the thing we should remember fondly which again indicates he has no idea what real faith and trust crisis is, and he has not been listening to the people who've been through it and what they've told him. Who are the people in this army? These are they of the non-contingent trust. So here we go. He's, he's, all pretense is gone now. It's blind faith. This army is an army of people with blind faith who have grown beyond complexity to the calm trust of informed simplicity. In other words, to translate, who've decided to ignore all the evidence, making it complicated, and instead just chosen to dumb them, their own brains down and be simple. And they're not that informed, because if they were informed enough, you can't return to that kind of simplicity. You, you evolve, you work through the, the stages of faith development, something much more complex who trust prophetic leadership not as the outcome of cunning calculations, but because they have discovered the same convictions and feelings in their own souls. So again, not dealing with accusations of cunning calculations by leaders by saying those cunning calculations weren't real, and here's the proof, but by ignoring the cunning calculations and just feeling warm and fuzzy. That's the solution not debunking the narrative of cunning calculation, which has a lot of evidence supporting it. They have found their own answers, even if not yet all of the answers they seek. So again, selling the idea that, you know, faith's a journey, you're never going to know all the truth, so stop expecting to, when actually we can know far more answers than they allow for. If you look at the evidence of objectively, you can find <laughs> lots of answers they know enough that they cast not away their confidence. They are not of them who draw back. So again, disparaging the people who found the truth and liberated themselves as being cowards who draw back. Who are the people in this army? Behold the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it. They shall inherit the kingdom of God, and their joy shall be full forever. Second Nephi 9.18 These are they which come out of the great tribulation and complexity, he's added, and have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7. Revelation 7.14 To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, Revelation 3.21 True faith is not blind or deaf 
or dumb. Rather, true faith sees and overcomes her adversary. End of that chapter. Those journeys of coming through tribulation and proving yourself faithful and inheriting joy, that's the tribulation of actually moving towards truth, not backing away from truth. It is the tribulation of understanding the complexity and struggle of real life instead of then choosing to ignore it or deny its impact and to lose empathy with the people who are broken by that tribulation, particularly if it's coming from your own faith tradition, not from outside it. The people imposing shame here are the members of the church shaming people who do what they were raised by the church to do, to ask questions, to seek answers, to actually follow the example of Jesus Christ, to resist institutional corruption and traditions that harm your spiritual journey rather than empowering it. He said true faith is not blind, but he's spoken about intentional blindness and how he and his wife, in researching the history of the racism in the church, chose to stop. He said pause, but he clearly meant stop. They were choosing to become blind to the rest of the evidence they would have had to explore. Or deaf, I've already pointed out, that he is clearly not listening to the actual lived experience of the people in faith and trust crisis. Or dumb, he is choosing to refrain from talking about the full scale of the problems and the difficulties and the evidence of them. So I agree, true faith is not blind or deaf or dumb. But you, Bruce and Marie Hafen, are advocating for blind, deaf, dumb faith. And you call it non-contingent faith, which means the same thing. It was disappointing that the Hafens could not be as honest even as the already five-year-old Gospel Topics essay about these matters and described a question like, were the LDS prophets wrong to teach and insist upon racist segregation for over a century as, quote, a close case, <laughs> where it is difficult to decide what is the correct side to lean towards? This is an approach echoed in Elder Lawrence Corbridge's much-promoted and shared message in his BYU speech, Stand Forever, on the 22nd of January 2019, to do the same. I am pleased some of the general authorities are trying to address the looming destruction of their church, but these solutions they are coming up with are frankly sinister, and also futile. Those shells will just break again as the dysfunctions that broke them in the first place are still carrying on, mostly unchallenged, from within the active membership. This delusion that just telling people to ignore the problems and be more loyal to them than ever actually works has emboldened the apostles to become even more extreme and demanding in the unconditional obedience and thought-stopping they preach, rather than learning how to stop and return to something Christ-like in how they operate. The vast majority of members of the church who start to process these realities are in no mood to put everything back on their shelf and return to intellectual, spiritual and financial poverty-inducing subservience to these leaders. They continue their journey of thinking and researching and working through all the complex interrelated entanglements the church has with their minds, their feelings, their families, 
and their friends until they do achieve a simplicity and clarity of understanding. But it isn't the simplicity and compliance the Hafens think the journey through complexity arrives at. They return to the real foundational principles the church and Jesus taught them in the first place. Lying is wrong. There are no excuses good enough for lying to trusting men, women and children on an industrial scale, especially after convincing them you speak for God. The general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are liars. They are betraying and harming their followers and their religion, not serving and protecting it. Stealing is wrong. There are no excuses good enough for stealing money from trusting men, women and children on an industrial scale. The general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are thieves. They are betraying and harming their followers and their religion not serving and protecting it. They are, and have for a long time, been impoverishing it, while making themselves, their relatives and friends who get shoehorned into salaried ecclesiastical leadership, mission presidency and bureaucracy positions, and the American stock market, very, very rich. They've been doing this all along. Brigham Young died a millionaire while the people he led scraped out subsistence lives in a wilderness. The ward budgets are tiny and totally inadequate to compete for the hearts and minds of the young, while vast sums of money are taken from our wards and poured into the Brigham Young universities to subsidise the education and middle-class comforts of already prosperous, mostly white American Mormon families and into Enzyme Peak. When you finally rid yourself of the indoctrinated idea that complaining about being robbed means you are the spiritually broken person who cares about money too much, rather than the people who robbed you being the broken ones, you stare the LDS church charity fraud operation in the face and see it for what it really is. Treating women, LGBTQ people, and people of particular races as subservient, second-class citizens with severely impeded rights, power and opportunities compared to white, straight, cisgender men, is always, in every situation and in every era of history, wrong. There are no excuses good enough for perpetuating the slavery, segregation, demeaning and oppression of racism, misogyny, homophobia and transphobia. The general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are racists, sexists, homophobes and transphobes. They are some of the most determined racist, sexist, homophobic and transphobic people and voices left in the developed modern world, and they are proud of this, pointing to it as a key indicator of their unwavering righteousness. Another simple and clear principle you return to after the complications of trust crisis is that endangering children and offering them up to sexual predators is wrong. 
This should be one of the most obvious and easiest things for alleged followers of Jesus Christ to get right, but they still get it mostly wrong unless actual governments intervene. They make all kinds of excuses for Joseph Smith in his 30s and 40s marrying and having sex with 14 and 15 year old girls. They don't just ignore the safeguarding of children. They proactively deploy their lawyers, their vast wealth, and their political lobbyists to oppose any effort to legally oblige churches to protect child abuse victims and report predators to the police. They have been doing this with as much vigour as ever just this month. They haven't even understood Jesus' unequivocal warning about being thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their necks for this. What on earth are they expecting at the pearly gates? The keys to a mansion? None of these are issues about the distant past. They are all happening right now, in a church that is 200 years old and should definitely know better by now. They are not accidental errors or unintended side effects of an otherwise virtuous enterprise. They are all baked into the whole system of how the church operates now from top to bottom. The general authorities are not ignorant of the problems because they have been told over and over that these things are not acceptable and are driving people away from them for decades. They are just defiant, arrogant, spoilt, self-important, prideful and defiant rather than humble or thoughtful. Over the last 10 years, I have walked a very well-trodden path to epic disillusionment with the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People who walked it before me in public and private have described it to me in person and in their blogs and podcasts and chided me to stop resisting the walk to freedom because I would eventually realise that the arguments I was offering up for taking it slow would be blown out of the water. They had all been there and done that. They too had invested everything they were and had to give to this organisation for many years and had to grapple with the sunk cost fallacy, clinging tightly to something that cost you too much to trust so much because you want some kind of good to still happen because of all that effort or for it to somehow not have been a massive waste of your life. It took a long time for me to finally understand what they were saying and why they were saying it, and to kick myself in frustration that it took so long to see what should have been obvious. Lying, thieving, child-endangering bigots are not the people who should be leading your religion or allowed to become authority figures in your life. They are not the people you should keep making excuses for or be endlessly patient with. They should not be the people you give your money to or put pictures of on your wall. Their speeches should probably be put straight in the recycling bin, not poured over until you have practically memorised them. Ironically though, poring over the details of what they say in their speeches until I have practically memorised them has been my gateway to freedom. They hung their own credibility with their own words. 
they have started literally teaching the opposite religion to the Jesus and Restoration one, and they lie and contradict each other and themselves while claiming to be united and consistent. There is no coming back from that. It is too much to ignore. There is no way you can gaslight that away, although of course many try. You can't appeal to inaccurately recorded history, or not understanding the context of the times, or say, you weren't there, so you can't really judge their tone and what they meant by what they said. These are the church's main defences for long-dead prophets doing and saying terrible things it now pretends to disavow. It isn't an argument that actually works, even for the dead historical prophets, of course. If they were as inspired and infallible as they claim the living prophets are, the primitive bigotries common in their societies like slavery and racism and treating women as property should have made no difference at all to prophets capable of understanding and being told by God eternal, timeless, true principles. But there is no wiggle room at all for any of that gaslighting now. While living prophets, seers and revelators repeatedly claim not to be changing their teachings with the times and immune to the influences of worldly social pressure, we are personal, first-hand witnesses of what they say, the tone they say it with and the context they are saying it in, rather than interpreting and guessing such things from incomplete written records from a century ago. Thanks to the wonderful gifts of the technology of the modern media age, we can simply have these people speak their ideas in front of our faces, on a screen, or in person, after they step off the aeroplane they flew to our stake centres in. We can re-listen, replay, fact-check, and compare what they say with all the other things they have said in public speeches from their very own mouths. And it pretty quickly becomes clear if they are making sense, or engaging in irrational moriankama and easily refuted propaganda in sermons and devotionals that leave your brain feeling stupider by the end of them than when they started talking. It couldn't possibly be easier and simpler to understand and articulate. These leaders are demonstrably choosing to be lying, thieving, child-endangering bigots very exciting to realise that there never has to be another moment where you are a slave to the power and ideas of lying, thieving, child-endangering bigots. That final effort like heaving yourself out of a swimming pool of sticky mud when you push through against the inertia of a lifetime of conditioning and finally give yourself permission to be done with their nonsense is amazing. Your mind and even your body feel suddenly free and powerful. I remember Bill Real talking about the physical tensions and weight he felt leave his body when he let go of the struggle of trying to make trusting, untrustworthy leaders somehow work. It seemed very weird to me at the time, but I'm beginning to understand now. It can come with a heavy cost though. Excommunication loss of community, regrets, extreme marital tensions, family shunning and estrangements, and even divorce for a lot of people. Yet in a decade of interacting with the huge community of thousands of post-Mormons around the world, 
I can't actually recall hearing anyone say it was not ultimately worth it, despite the costs, or that they would go back if they could. I'm sure there are some, and every so often a dissident returns to the fold, but the vast majority of the traffic is a thunderous, stampeding herd of people on the way out, like a nature documentary about migrating wildebeest or an old Wild West movie with stampeding buffalo filling the horizon. I find this very moving and profound. It speaks to the incredible worth of human freedom and freedom to choose your own path in life. This is why people fight and die for freedom against systems of oppression. It is simply worth it. Although this stampede seems to be people running away from Mormonism, it is Mormonism that also taught us and reinforced this value system, that the ultimate struggle is the struggle to find truth and have it make you free. It taught us that the struggle for this freedom began in the pre-existence war in heaven and has carried on ever since. Mormonism gave me a wonderful childhood as a white male living hundreds of miles away from any of my dozens of cousins and aunts and uncles and lucky to see my grandparents once a year. My ward was my surrogate extended family with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins from every social class and walk of life. To quote Hillary Clinton, I was raised by a village, as well as my sometimes frustrating but fundamentally superb parents. They loved and cared for me. They taught me and developed me into a far more socially confident, well-rounded and interesting person than I would have been without them. I had an absolutely brilliant childhood, youth and young adulthood in this religion. I was lucky. The rates of attrition of friends, converts and once active members who disappeared from the pews and the socials around me in those years was literally several times worse than the casualty rates in World War I, which were 14%. If the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints only lost 14% of its members, it would be a global religion, rapidly fulfilling the astonishing predictions of the researchers into new religious movements in the 1980s, telling us we would have 50 million members by now. The reality is far, far worse than that. Here in the UK and Europe, we now have fewer than 14% of our members still attending on a Sunday. But despite this demoralising disaster, I'm one of the few dissidents who still thinks Mormonism could be a credible, healthy and exponentially growing religion in the 21st century information age. But before we can do that, you will need convincing. Many of you intrepid listeners need no convincing at all that the church and its leaders are corrupt, betraying its core values, not practising what it sanctimoniously preaches and judges everyone else for. You are convinced it is unsalvageable and has nowhere near enough redeeming qualities to make it worth saving. So, my task is to convince you that it could be saved, reformed and made deserving of survival and that this might even be a good thing for the religious world generally. Or at least reformed enough for your active, faithful family members and friends to start treating you like a grown adult who is not a threat to their children, 
and their own well-being simply by existing in the same space as them, and maybe to stop facilitating child abuse. That win alone would be worth some effort. Others of you are convinced that things are nowhere near as bad as Peter Bleakley and doom-monger Jeremiah activist podcasters and critics of the church keep claiming it is. You are repelled by people saying such dreadful things about people you are convinced are innocent and at worst a bit overcautious and out of touch, not intentionally running a crime syndicate. I mean, be reasonable, Peter. So we should just plod along and hope gradual change keeps happening as we are dragged several steps behind the ethical centre of gravity of the majority of people in society and sort of eventually get to the points of realisation and progress they somehow managed to get to first without the benefit of our profits. I mean, first of all, isn't that just embarrassing? You keep claiming to have profits who see ahead and around corners, but the secular world keeps beating them by years to basic stuff like treating women and races equally, realising that LGBTQ people are born that way, that the world was not created teeming with immortal life and no death before humans came along. Remember, millions of years of fossils are definitely of very dead animals, and that the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a symbolic metaphor, not literally true. But shoving that elephant in the room aside for now, my job in these episodes is to finish convincing you that the mess the church is in is far, far, far worse than you ever imagined, and fast forward your journey through realisation and disillusionment to come out the other end with the resolve to make changes happen. That usually takes people many years to arrive at, if they are lucky enough to even have that long walk to freedom. Since we don't have years left anymore to save the church, and a lot more individuals and families are going to be hurt, as millions already are by these dysfunctions, if they are not addressed fast, my challenge is to condense it down to a few hours, and at the end of it, leave you not just ready to give up and leave the church like most people who have that epiphany do, but inspired and motivated to give it one last urgent push for radical reforms before it entirely falls over a cliff. I want you to join me in the weird but wonderful twilight zone of realising just how messed up everything is, while at the same time still hopeful and clear in your mind about how we could make all the changes that need to occur happen within the culture, scriptures and systems of power in the church that are already in place. And that this kind of radical transformation, like the astonishing transformation Jesus and his disciples accomplished, turning a fossilised and parochial Judaism into the largest international religion the world has ever seen, is just as possible in Mormonism. That's a bold claim and a big ask. Are you intrigued, intrepid listeners? Are you prepared to come a few more hours with me on this journey as we weave a thread of light through the tangled mess that has been made of our religion and see what has gone wrong, how it went wrong, who did this to us all and how we could fix it all? 
I'm pretty confident that I've finally got to most of the answers. It is exciting. It doesn't require you to consider me a prophet, give me a penny of your dosh, start a new church, abandon your heritage, or any real truth, secular or otherwise, you have learnt. It all boils down to a simple invitation to live by the spirit of Mormonism and its greatest big ideas that I believe are still the best big ideas in the religious world, or at least the equals of any others, and to join the revolution to throw off the heavy chains of overwhelming, pointless, busy work, guilt trips, and infantilizing, unethical thought control the general authorities of the LDS Church have imprisoned and enslaved you with. My wife Lynn lived for many years, tearing herself apart in the futile struggle to be good enough and worthy enough and work hard enough to earn the blessings her patriarchal blessing and endless speakers and apostles promised her. While I still attend church regularly, she cannot stand to go anywhere near a Mormon chapel or meeting unless it is to vote opposed these days. We were talking in the car recently about some of the stress and burdens in our lives and how much she just hates what the church and what its well-meaning but harmful people did to her and still does to so many people. The painful process of separation and the impact that stepping out of that bubble has had on our family and friendship relationships. The worries we have with our jobs, our home renovations, our parents' failing health, and all that normal life stuff. We talked about how we'd still be doing all the stuff we are busy with now that we just about cope with and is still knackering, but also be doing church callings, grim socials where people just sit there and eat and we try to be nice to people who aren't always very nice, much as we love them. How we'd be constantly worrying and anxious about the people we need to reactivate, the people we need to visit, the people we need to save, the people we need to convert, every single thing we think and say and do, and how sinful they rank on the very specific and strict judgmental Mormon measuring stick of worthiness. Then suddenly her face lit up, and she said something like, but I still can't believe how free I feel now. Whatever else is going on, I'm still amazed every day at how much better my life is without carrying all that heavy weight of guilt and stress and exhaustion. I feel like a different person, and it's so bloody amazing. Close quote. Her words made me immediately think of all the people, women in particular, that I know who stepped away from active participation in Mormonism after years of totally devoted and relentless service. They reminded me how again and again the reason they gave for leaving was simply that they were overwhelmed and exhausted by the endless guilt trips and the futile effort. Starting with Valda, my primary teacher, who became a born-again Christian in the 1970s, and described to my dad in a home teaching visit he told us about at dinner time later, how for the very first time she actually felt forgiven by Jesus and good enough for heaven. I was still very young, and it was the first time I remember encountering the nutty born-again idea 
that you should feel hopeful, saved, and at peace now in your relationship with Jesus, not some unspecified moment in the future after a lifetime of anxiety and judgment and never feeling good enough for heaven. And more recently, a dear sister who had served as Relief Society president and simply described a few years ago exactly what Lynn was describing in the car. How stepping away from the Mormon busy work treadmill just lifted a huge weight off her shoulders. The TBM mind, of course, regards such sentiments as selfish laziness, as not being tough enough, as looking for excuses to stop doing the right things. But that's the mental mantra of the Pharisees, isn't it? Their religion is all about doing, doing, doing. Doing this, doing a hundred of that, all of it measurable, quantifiable and judgeable. Nothing about just being the way Jesus taught, just being good, compassionate, loving, a help, a friend, sustainably, unconditionally, holistically, without judgment. I would simply say to church members still in denial that they have a problem to solve now, two things. One, if your religion is this good, this self-evidently true, and giving you as much joy as you claim it does, why is it always this hard to get and keep a testimony and feel worthy? And secondly, why is it not working? It's collapsing all around you. Even your own children can't stand it anymore, never mind the tens of thousands of other families living within your ward boundaries choosing not to join it, when you used to manage to convert several of them every year enough to replace the levers and also grow slowly but surely. When are you going to open your eyes and wake up and realise we cannot carry on as we are, or anything close to how we are right now? These leaders and their way of doing things have demonstrably failed. They aren't capable of real change. They have no new ideas up their sleeve that are going to turn things around and uncrash the good ship Zion from the rocks it is trapped and drowning on. So come with me. If you are still too naive and trusting, take this as a challenge. I'm going to eviscerate the last shreds of foolish trust you have that these leaders and their teaching and tactics are anything to do with Jesus, or anything at all to do with any strategy that will work long term. I'm going to show you from their own words and actions that they are a sinister mess, that they are liars, charity fraudsters, thieves, misogynists, child abusers and enablers and protectors of child abusers, because they are. And whether you find this out now or later, you will eventually find it out if you ever allow yourself to actually look and see the proof. Ask yourself, Hypothetically, if the 15 prophets, seers, and revelators you declare loyalty to in worthiness interviews and conferences and testimony meetings were these things, would you want to know? Or are you more comfortable being lied to and lying to yourself? Many people really are more comfortable with the familiar and lying to themselves and being lied to. But I'm afraid it isn't even an option anymore, or not for long.
because of all the things you are stubbornly and naively ignoring, the church you feel safe in and rely on and don't want to fact-check or question is not even going to be there in 10 to 20 years. It will be literally gone. The building will be closed and the congregation will be a fading memory. If you don't want that outcome, I'm afraid you are going to have to force your eyes and ears to start paying attention to why that is happening now. If you are a hard-bitten post-Mormon skeptic, I love you, I respect you, you are right. You have every justification and more to be quite happy to watch this failed experiment in religion building burn to the ground and stop hurting people. It doesn't deserve you. It doesn't deserve what you gave it and what it took from you. In many ways, you would be much better off forgetting it ever existed and going off to live your life without giving it another thought. But, you knew there'd be a but, if you are still listening to this, you know that it's not that simple for most people. You are still heavily, culturally and psychologically entrenched in this religion and its ideas and community. You have friends still in it. Your wife, your parents, your cousins, your children are still in it. It will not leave you alone. They all keep trying to get you back by every stratagem from guilt trips to love bombing. Maybe you care enough to want them to find out the truth and the lies they believe and teach to free their minds and their lives from mind-forged manacles, to be there for them as they go through the same painful process of deconstruction that liberated you. While you are still this enmeshed in the LDS Church, the only way your life and that of the people you care about is going to get better is if this organisation, this community, makes radical reforms for the better and lets go of as many of its harmful dysfunctions as possible. It seems an overwhelming and futile task, but don't be disheartened. All the chickens are coming home to roost now. Karma is being a bitch. Justice is starting to happen. The truth they hid is being broadcast from the rooftops and the satellites in orbit around this beautiful jewel of a world. The walls of Jericho, are crumbling and falling. The lying, morally bankrupt apologists are failing horribly and turning on each other like wolves. Change for reform or spectacular destruction is coming wild and fast. Strap in, it's going to be a wild ride, and if we get lucky and keep focused and determined, a small handful of people with the right ideas and truth on their side could pull off a miracle and reboot Mormonism as a credible world religion for the information and space age. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in exile has already worked out and stress-tested everything it will take to make this happen. So, it just might. The thinking has already been done. Either way, it will happen fast and soon, or not at all. So, if you can give this war zone, this marketplace of ideas, another few years of caring and trying, this is a short-term invitation, and you can get back to other stuff later. The chess pieces are all in place for the final battle in this era of the Mormon Civil War. The managers rather than leaders have completed their inexorable infiltration and fossilization 
of every corner of the church, exactly as Hugh Nibley predicted and warned in 1980. The faction of fundamentalist Mormon Pharisees have successfully completed their infiltration and takeover of the leading quorums of the church, and now run it exactly like any fascist mafia. They are asset-stripping the poor of the world to make themselves and their organisation inconceivably rich, while proclaiming their greatness and infallibility, putting the young people into uniforms and marching them around in battalions. They have a thriving propaganda operation to keep the peasants pacified, distracted and lied to about pretty much everything. They have a secret thought police to hunt down and neutralise any dissenting minds and voices called the Strengthening Church Members Committee. And now they are changing all the covenants and rules and doctrines from Christian Mormon ones to autocratic authoritarian Pharisee ones. Drunk on the pride and hubris that comes before a mighty fall, they are now teaching openly and regularly the opposite of the Gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the opposite of the Gospel of Jesus of Zarahemla, and the opposite of the Gospel of the Restoration Scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants in every particular, including all the instructions about their own callings and the transition of power. They have taken off the mask of Christ, the sheep's clothing, and are ruling as ravening wolves. Even the government of the USA has cottoned on to their mafia operation that gives the epic billion-dollar fuel fraud of the Short Creek Utah polygamous fundamentalists a run for its money. The Securities and Exchange Commission has fined the First Presidency and presiding bishopric an unprecedented $5 million for breaking the law to hide the Enzyme Peak tithing billions in 13 fraudulent shell companies and the presiding bishopric has just admitted lying on the church's tax statements to the IRS, stating that the entire assets of the church are worth just $1 million, and saying the real number is none of their business. So much for honouring and sustaining the law, and rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Let's take back control of this religion from these incompetent, corrupt clowns. If we don't, the complete destruction of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is now inevitable. There is literally nothing left to lose except our chains. Join me in the next episode of this mini-series as we explore in glorious detail how the secular state authorities have already started holding the general authorities of the LDS Church to account and punishing them for their crimes, and how we are completely within our rights and church policies to instigate the same church discipline against them that they have not hesitated to deploy against any church member telling the whole truth about them.